right. Good morning, class. Uh, thank you for joining us with uh, another edition of the Art Eater podcast. Um, always very excited to uh, be here with my good bros, uh, Andy and Sean. Hello. Hey. Hey. Always a fun time with, with you two. Um, so last time uh, we talked about the decade in review. We talked about, you know, uh, what we thought were the biggest trends in games of the 2010s. Uh, today, uh, I'd like to talk about what we think are the, uh, the best games of the decade. Uh, so first, we'll start off talking about what we feel is the most influential game of the decade. Uh, we can go around each uh, propose what we thought was the the most uh, you know defining game of the decade, um, and then after that, I think we'll end stuff with uh, just talking about our favorite games of the decade. You know, they don't necessarily have to be um, the the greatest games of all time. Just games that we personally connected with, right? And um, so uh, let's let's get to it. Let's get to it. So. Fellas, uh, what do you feel like was the most influential uh, game of the decade, and why? Uh, who wants to start? Uh, Richmond, why don't you go first? Me? Okay. Um, I have a strong suspicion that perhaps this might be the game on everyone else's mind, too. Um, I think, to me, it's very clear that the 2010s, that was the decade of the... Uh, the Souls games. So uh, my pick for Game of the Decade is, well, it should be Demon Souls, but that technically came out in 2009, so I got a default to uh, Dark Souls. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just think, you know, if, if uh, for so many reasons, I, I got to say Dark Souls was uh, the defining game of the decade. Uh, not only was it a great game, but it... Um, really went against the grain of the trends of the uh, the aughts, you know? And um, I think for that, I, I think, like, it, it really is the game where you start seeing a paradigm shift in how people uh, design games and then how people appreciated games. Um, the most obvious thing being that it made uh, very difficult games fashionable again. You know, like, this is taking games back to their roots to like, you know, the arcade days, 8-bit days, 16-bit days. Um, this was a game where uh, you're expected to to die all the time um, and to learn from it. And uh, it, it was a very punishing game, um, but it was also very skill-based, you know. It was not unfair. Once you actually pick up the systems, uh, you, you could speed run the game. You, you could get through the game without getting hit. You know, you could run through the game naked. Uh, so, so just the, the, the skill ceiling on it was uh, so high, and um, there's just so much stuff you could do there, and uh, I, there's so much we could talk about with this, but um, uh, yeah, like... Uh, I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to add, uh, the difficulty thing was uh, one I was going to bring up, and uh, I do totally agree this was going to come up on my list. It's uh, interesting when you talk about the influential piece, because it didn't start um i think showing its influence until later in the decade right. but uh a lot of games that i think people would put at their top of the list or as games that did really well near the end of the decade like the god of war remake uh like jedi fallen order from respawn um as you know obvious ones you start seeing a lot of design decisions being reflected in the way the, the game is made and the thing you said about difficulty it isn't just being hard 
or being non pun or you know being fairly punishing as you were kind of alluding to. Uh, one thing I noticed, and even though I don't think everyone's going to put a, a game like Jedi Fallen Order um, in the mix, the reason I also brought up God of War is that it it came down to this idea of I think thoughtful combat. Uh, people yeah. weren't looking for difficulty by just scaling up health, right? Like right. Uh, you have, also have games where uh, like the IGN game of the year was Sekiro, which was made by, uh, you know, from, and it's definitely considered a Soulsborne game is people are really uh, getting interested in this thoughtful technical style of combat where, uh, and the reason that I think Fallen Order is interesting is because it's predecessors, Forge Unleashed, that, that combat was just you blazing through, just killing every stormtrooper with just hitting the square button, basically, you know, to pick out one platform. But, uh, you know, it was it was fun for people, but it wasn't satisfying because there wasn't any, uh, there wasn't any, not difficulty, but there wasn't tech, technique to the combat. Like, you didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to pay attention to timing. You didn't have to plan your attacking. And I think uh, God of War also added that as well. And, like, the influence of, hey, uh, people enjoy um, academic combat in a way that it's difficult um, it's, it's difficult by scaling the curve of how you react to it and how you plan rather than just making them, you know, bullet sponges or, you know, health sponges. Yeah. Um, yeah, the from like it really was a from software's decade, uh, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, uh, and then ending with Sekiro. Um, yeah, what you said about uh, your learning, like um, when you die in Dark Souls, you you go, oh, OK, like the treasure chest ate me or, oh, um, I, you know, was attacking when I should have been rolling away or. You, you know why you die. Like, every death is teaching you something. And uh, a lot of Dark Souls is planning and some execution. Like, uh, as long as you're planning, like, you can go through most of the game. Um, that's why well, I think uh, Sekiro is a, was, uh, you know, building off of Dark Souls in that it's... Sekiro, you kind of fight almost every enemy in a very straightforward way. You parry and counterattack. So that game is very much about execution, but then learning all of the tells and the rhythm. It's like kind of becomes like a dancer rhythm game to uh, parry everything and then counterattack at the right timing. Um, I'd say the Dark Souls games have uh, they really do give a feeling of you used to not know something, but now you know something. Like you can look on your yourself of of the day before and see how much you've grown um i think that's what makes it uh, so memorable for so many players yeah absolutely um i mean it, it's a very successful action rpg and we, yeah. we haven't even gotten into like the the, the story and the lore yeah. but um i i do want to just talk about the game pit play a, a, a bit more uh because uh just rolling things back a bit like if you'll recall, um, the leap from PS2 to uh, you know PS3, that console generation, um, suddenly we had consoles with uh, huge hard drives, and you could make like really huge games, um, and open world became uh, very hot. And uh, I'd say going into the 2010s, um, I, I believe Dark Souls was released 2010 actually, or 11 maybe. It was, it was at the beginning of the decade. Yeah, 2011. Like, yeah, going into that, um, the expectation for top-selling AAA games was like, you know, 
they'd be open world, uh, they'd be very cinematic, they would have like hours of, of dialogue, uh, they, they would have all this content, but um, they wouldn't necessarily be uh, that deep in terms of gameplay. You know, it was like, like Sean had mentioned yeah. before, like a lot of it is about like uh, grinding, you know, like if it's an RPG, um, yeah. traditionally you just like grind, grind, grind. <laughs> and um, uh, Dark Souls was, well, really like, yeah, it, it was based, it was the successor to Demon Souls, which was the successor to uh, Kingsfield. So. Uh, From has been doing this a very long time. It wasn't like this came out of nowhere or it was a reaction to um, trends in games. It was more like what they had been doing this whole time um, suddenly had had a lot more meaning uh, to to this generation, like especially in comparison to how far games had moved away from their arcadey roots. And um, yeah. I just just want to say one more thing. I, I, I think for me. Uh, that was one of the things that was really interesting about the gameplay in Dark Souls. So, like, you, you know, there, there were things like you could customize your character, uh, deep customization, different weapons and stuff. But but at its core, like, uh, it was just about the, the mastering the basic mechanics and knowing your enemy, knowing your environment. And it, to me, felt like uh, just recontextualizing um, the... The, the basics of like, you know, arcadey 8-bit era games um, into like this moody, you know, 3D, like lush, um, uh, like really immersive experience. So like, you know, like you, you die a lot, but then like that's actually part part of the story, right? Like, so suddenly it's not this um, kind of artificial conceit that like, okay, well, you know, you died, you have a limited number of lives, you're, you're reset yeah. to the beginning of the stage or something. Now it's like, it's part of the lore. Like, um, th this is like a, a, a dying world uh, where, where video game logic um, is real. Like, you're, you're, you're undead, right? You're, you're, you're cursed with, like, you know, uh, you just can't die. And then, um, but at the same time, um, it's not just continues. Like, you do restart with the, uh, the flasks, right? To, to heal yourself so so in that way that was effectively like kind of giving yourself continues um but you kind of have to choose you know when when you you use them um yeah right and then when you die uh, you have infinite continues in this uh, much like you know which had become standard by the ps ps3 um xbox uh 360 era um so in that way it's like way less punishing than uh you know old older uh, generation games. Um, I I did really enjoy the addition of the mechanic that the bonfires would reset uh, yeah. enemies. So yeah. it added this element of uh, you had a, a strate you had strategic choices to make. Uh, like there there it was there there was a counterbalance to the infinite continue though, right? Yeah. Like it was that yeah. case where you you into this planning mode. And I think they that's where they started to play with what it meant for progression. Uh, like, you get a checkpoint, but it's not a free checkpoint, per se. There's there's things to be considered uh, as you're, you know, returning your health and stamina. And and especially uh, managing your SS flask and stuff like that, that yeah. became a part of uh, the gameplay. It wasn't just going in and being, like, remembering which way to roll. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, you remember uh, very early on when... Um, when these games came out, I, I think, uh, which one was the one that had the campaign? Like, I remember the first time I died, 
Was that Demon Souls or was that Dark Souls? Uh, that was Dark Souls. I think that was their commercial. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, it was a very good commercial. Yeah. But do you, do you remember we were like, you know, this is like Mario, right? Yeah, yeah, it is Mario pacing. Um, like, um, I remember the Sonic designer, he said, uh, Mario is like learning to play music on a piano. If you can hit all of the right keys, then you pass the level. Yeah, you learn the level. Yeah. Did y'all ever play Mario Teaches Typing, where you had to learn to type, and that's how you completed the Mario level? Uh, yeah, wait, is, is that... Oh. That's probably no. I didn't play that one, but I'm, I'm that getting does that mixed seem up. very appropriate. Like, was that also Mario is missing, or was that did that involve typing? Uh, I, I don't remember. Uh, it just when you said the the piano thing, it reminded me yeah. of that game where uh, basically it was a it was a Mario. It was an official Mario game, except that the way that you controlled Mario, the way that you advanced him to the level, was by typing the sentences they gave you. Oh, <laughs> and, what's you, you got bonuses for doing it at a certain speed, too. What what platform was that for? What Nintendo console had a keyboard? I'm pretty sure it was just a software. It was a PC thing you bought. Oh, really? Yeah. They released, like, a PC Mario yeah. game? It was a DOS game, yeah. Oh, yeah. DOS. They were taking on Mavis Beacon. Whoa. <laughs> wow, what an interesting footnote. Uh, okay. Came out in 1992. So that would have been right when the Super Nintendo came out, right? Yeah. Yeah, it has its own graphics. Um, I mean, when you do look at a Mario-like level, um, like Miyamoto's original sketches, like, laying them out, it, it's almost like uh, notations for, like, playing music. Like a me <laughs> uh, sheet music, yeah. Yeah. Um... But going into, you know, learning in games, um, is that French sociologist in the 60s, Roger, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's like Roger Calouis. He, um, okay. he broke down uh, fun into four elements. Uh, they were like role play. You play as something for fun. You know, you pretend to be like, you're drinking tea, even though it's a tree stump, or you're like cops and robbers. There's a chance, gambling, just not knowing what's in a box is exciting. Uh, there's vertigo, which is, you know, the feeling of looking down from something high or just experiencing an emotion. And then there's challenge, like, you know, being uh, more skilled than someone, like either competing against them or just being uh, more skilled at doing something like a Rubik's Cube go beating your own time and i think dark souls hits all four of those points really really nicely like uh we usually focus on oh you know prepare to die the challenge but there's a lot of seemingly random things in dark souls like just turning the corner not knowing what's there mm. uh being eaten by a treasure chest like that's happened to everyone once because after that you hit every treasure uh, treasure chest just to make sure mm. And then the role play, like, instead of just, you know, choosing, like, I am this or that, or, like, equipping this or that, or, like, you know, giving yourself badges of things to do, the role play is, like, well, you're in this horrible, miserable world, and you got to survive. Like, that's the vertigo element. 
you've got all of these souls, and if you die, you're going to drop all of them, and then you have to go through this hellish area again. Like, even if it doesn't happen to you, like, when you're not in danger, you're still thinking about, like, where the danger could be. It's like those four elements are very nicely balanced in Dark Souls. Yeah. Uh, so how, how, how do you guys see that, um, that balance uh, influencing uh, other games? Like... <laughs> See, um, I would say, I mean, Dark Souls isn't really the first to do this. Like, Monster Hunter has been around for like a decade longer yeah. with uh, very similar mechanics, but um, it uh, was it wasn't as serious, you know. Like, you're hunting monsters because like it's fun instead of like the world dying. And, okay. I mean, I remember like in the PlayStation Two, like uh, Monster Hunter getting really poorly reviewed because you you don't have infinite potions and like you have to learn all the different monsters and uh, you know why is my three meter sword so slow why can't i just automatically hit him right and right. Uh, people were getting angry that they would chug the potion in front of the monster and the monster hit them <laughs> yeah yeah like yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was that was because they did not want to <clears throat> they wanted the end result they didn't want to learn the game to do it but um, Dark Souls changed that attitude. Like, now if, uh, you know, someone says, like, oh, you know, why is this game, like, requiring me to learn something, like, instead of that being a valid and accepted criticism, then people go, well, no. Um, I mean, if it's a good game, then they'll go, well, the game designer wants you to learn a, a certain way of playing their game. Um so I would say one of the legacies of Dark Souls since is that uh, games don't have, they don't have to have like a universal control scheme and like just be like giving you rewards as their reward. Just the way to get there and learning the way to get there is uh, what makes it rewarding. And um, as for games that it's influenced, like, yeah, like Sean's mentioned, uh, the later games that have come that are more Dark Souls feeling compared to the games that that company had made before or the games in the previous iterations of that series. The the other thing that uh, comes to mind a lot with where <clears throat> where you see Dark Souls influence is this idea of ind <clears throat> indirect storytelling. Like, yeah. if you think about it, it's not a very narrative game. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, it's... It also, it doesn't even tell the story through, uh, like, dialogue, per se. There's a lot of, uh, that's happening in the world and the way that you react to it. And uh, as Richard mentioned with the bonfire uh, system, how a lot of the story is told through the world. Um, and there definitely were a number of influential narrative and cinematic games in this decade. But especially if you look at the, the indie games overall, you're starting to see a lot of games that... Uh, are really embracing this idea of how to tell the story through the gameplay and through the world and not yeah. kind of shove it straight up in your face. Uh, not that that's necessarily bad. It depends on the type of game. Yeah, I, I think uh, that that's definitely one of the areas where um, Dark Souls had such a humongous influence was uh, storytelling through the gameplay, you know, and just very, very uh, sparse little bits of text, item descriptions, and then the very rare cutscenes. Like, it just gives you these yeah. little morsels. And because you're, 
getting so little, but everything's so compelling that like you, you really appreciate it. Like it, it, it uses scarcity really well. Like it withholds information, not because like they're BSing you, but because like uh, they're putting you in the shoes of that character, right? Like they, they have to figure it out themselves, you know? Like yeah, no, no one's going around just just uh, monologuing about like well, what's going I on. I think um, the item description. I mean, they are... they will laugh at you for sure. Yeah. But well, they won't monologue. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like in Dark Souls, the item description, they do tell you things that um, the character should not know just from picking up like a sword or a ring, because then it'll tell you this is this you know ancient king's sword. Um, so well, that does make me. That. Yeah, but it's because you you pick it up yourself and then you read the description by your own volition. It just feels. It's like opening a treasure chest. Uh, like the treasure is knowledge. Mm. And um, but uh, lore wise, it does make me wonder. Like, does the Dark Souls protagonist have some kind of like psychometric power where they can just read the memory of objects? Because, uh, I mean, it is a world where you're killing things and absorbing your soul, uh, their soul. You are, like, taking the soul of a powerful being and then turning it into magic or turning it into a weapon. So there does seem to be, like, if there is an explanation, then, like, being able to read the memory of objects would fit in the world without feeling weird. And, um, I mean, that kind of... Like, when playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons, it kind of is like that, where, you know, um, you have, like, a list of, like, magic artifacts you might find, like, you know, this is the Flame of the North, the legendary greatsword of the Barbarian King. And yeah. when you pick it up, like, uh, something in the game will tell you about it, you know? This is a Holy Avenger last wielded by whoever, like... But instead of having, like, you know, a wise wise crone or or old dude just giving all the information it just kind of cuts right to well here's the information that you want after picking up this really cool sword or this really weird helmet yeah yeah Let's see um i i think another way that uh it, it was the the game of the decade was um the ways that it influenced uh uh, multiplayer and just uh, online oh, yeah, experiences. Yeah. Like I, I think that was one of the places where it, it really had a profound impact. Um, I mean, being able to see where people died, like that's such an awesome mechanic. I think that's um, it made it acceptable to die. Like uh, in Dark Souls, well, in Demon Souls, really, that's where it began. Like just seeing like there's this skeleton holding two katanas with glowing red eyes and then there's just this hallway covered in blood leading up to it you've seen like when it kills you you don't feel that bad when you know like well i did see that the skeleton <laughs> killed 12 different other players yeah so I, we're all in the same boat i think that's uh yeah the community building like yeah. i you i don't really enjoy the the fact that you could leave messages and there was uh, a timeline in Dark Souls that you could you could see with the player base, where early on, especially with the death thing, people came together and people were trusting each other. 
And then there was yeah. another part of the timeline where the trust was used to troll people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's always there. Like you could invade and kill people to take their soul and and uh, you know resurrect on your by killing someone else. Um, I, but, uh, I I remember the yeah. first time that I was trolled in that game. It it actually made me really mad for about uh, <laughs> about three seconds. And it was yeah. like you guys like, go over here. Don't time. worry. There's a platform down there. Oh, and I was like, yes. oh okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes. I, yeah, I fell for something like that too. <laughs> um, yeah, there's that hole where you just it, it instead of darkness, there's like it looks like there's like shifting souls inside of the hole, so it does seem like it's a magic portal. Um, but that is uh, that is how like you know the seventies era of Gary Gygax D and D. He loved to kill his players that way. <laughs> Like, one of the most famous traps was, um, here's this, you know, like, if you're going through, like, the, a magic dungeon and you see a glowing portal, you're probably going to walk through it, right? Because magic is everywhere. Well, like, one of the most famous traps was, here's a big glowing portal, but it's just like a, the, a disintegration portal. Whatever <laughs> walks through it will just be atomized and super dead. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so, so even back then when, when Gary Gygax uh, and crew were laying down the foundations of modern RPGs, which, which are a core part of like video games in general, yeah. even then they were like very quickly learning to like subvert um, expectations, right? Yeah, like, um, I mean, there's kind of a modern image of like, oh, you know, the DM is like, uh, or at least Gary must have been like some great, Tolkien-esque storyteller guiding you through, but it really, the from what I've read, like he's more like like Rumpelstiltskin. He wants you to die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Dark Souls asynchronousness. Um, I mean, that's influenced uh, Death Stranding. Greatly. Right. Like, I Absolutely. Think, uh, Death Stranding I took it further. Like, I feel like Death Stranding of, also took a much more, uh, I'm going to call it a much more optimistic um, yeah. look at it. <laughs> yeah, like, um, I was, like, before it came out, I was speculating, like, if you could, like, invade other people's games, like, because I, I wasn't thinking, like, it would be such a positive message, but more neutral. Because, like, say, in Phantom Pain, you could uh, attack each other's... Uh, mother bases and steal their supplies yep but, was it was yeah. it a snake eater that had like a, a team that you could send off to fight other players while you were not playing or um there was a metal gear game that had that right uh isn't what i'm talking about peace or walker portable or portable peace walker, portable peace walker. yeah yeah started with the portable ops though yeah 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 um and that kind of like asynchronous combat like um uh, one of the first games I worked on was like an iOS game that did that where, okay, you know, like lots of iOS, you know, or Facebook strategy games is like you log in to see that you've been attacked. Um, but the game that I was working on, like the innovation difference was uh, you had like this big shared map and you could see an enemy army coming at you. So you would know like, oh, they're going to hit me in like eight hours. Uh the game didn't take off, but like 
it made me appreciate asynchronous with a clue of like what's happening before it happens. Oh yeah, yeah, it's not quite the same as the the Kabam style games that spawned uh, Clash of Clans, where you would get attacked, but you didn't have much warning, right? Yeah, um, like yeah, that's 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 more like I guess what Pokemon Go does now. It's just you only know what happens like when you lose or when you just see that you haven't lost yet. Um, yeah, this kind of asynchronous, I feel like you know, almost any kind of game can benefit from it. And just that sense of community. Uh, yeah, Dark Souls is very good at building a community. Like, it's very active on uh, Reddit, and there's always, like, YouTubers speculating on stuff. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the um, this open-ended narrative approach where not everything is explicitly spelled out, that, that dovetailed very nicely with the rise of things like Reddit, right? Yeah. Um, you come together to, you know... Not even like solve a puzzle, it's just give your opinion on something or just talk about an experience that you had and then like some other people can go, oh, like that coincidence, I experienced it too. Like that's that's very fun. You don't feel like you're um, you're not just getting a a like a planned experience. It, it just emerges emergent experiences i i would say that's yeah. one of the key words of um game development of the last you know yeah. 10 10 15 years right yeah and that, that's something that dark souls was full of everyone had like really funny stories of um yeah. just 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 playthroughs or, or really uh, thrilling encounters with uh you know with uh, black phantom invading your game right like yeah oh, like uh it's like, I've had a, a game where, um, you know, people form fight clubs where, like, where you designate a zone to invade and duel instead of just invade and murder. Yeah. But, um, like, I went to a fight club, but then, like, some of the people violated the rules and were trying to kill the host. So, like, me and the host managed to kill them, and then after that's done, we go kill each other, like... Just a, a good, strong sense of emergent, silent honor. Yeah. Actually, yes, yeah, silence. There's no texting. Like, you can't chat with each other. You can only, like, do motions. Yeah. That, 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 I would say, okay, that's what, one more innovation was, um, you know, before games were all about, uh, going into the 2010s, it was all about group yeah. chat. Right, it was all about um, you know if you play any MMO like unless you're on a special server where everyone has to stay in character, it's it's very, you know, it's like hanging out, you crack jokes. It's it's not uh, necessarily super immersive. Um, and then yeah. you know Dark Souls comes along, strips away the chat, which which people used to hate. Uh, there, there was that online Resident Evil that um, uh, the sur Resident Evil Survivors, I think it was called something like yeah. that. Um, you know, like, that game, they also had no chat, and you were just supposed to help each other, and, like, oh, the reviewers punished it for that. But um, yeah. Dark Souls did that right. They, they took yeah. something that, that, that failed before, and, like, you know, they, they flipped the convention on its head. Like, because you don't have, you know, teenagers, like, cursing at you, <laughs> saying terrible yeah, yeah. things, like, the game was more immersive, and yeah. people acted more dignified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, well, that's I mean, pretty amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's like it it 
brought out people's better natures most of the time. Most of the time, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's because it's a, a challenging and hostile world, so you do want to usually help each other. Yeah. Didn't he, uh, I'm forgetting the game director's name for Dark Souls, but uh, didn't he talk a lot about how he was influenced by uh, things like Berserk? And, uh, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, Hidetaki Miyazaki, right? That's his name. Uh, it's, yeah, Hidetaka Miyazaki. Oh my god, I mangled that. I'm so sorry. No, only by one letter. Uh, I didn't even attempt it. I, I couldn't. I, I remembered it, it. It reminded me of Miyazaki, but I knew that wasn't the name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hayao Miyazaki is a much more angry person. But, yeah. Um, yeah, he's talked about like Berserk being an influence. He talked about um, the fighting fantasy books being a big influence because he couldn't, like, he wasn't fluent in English, so he like understood half of them. And then oh, he had you, to fill in the blanks. Can, which can you inspired. let our uh, audience know what the fighting fantasy books are? Uh, fighting fantasy, those were like um, choose-your-own-adventure books, right? Yes. Yeah, single-player role-playing game books by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston. Livingstone. Ian Livingstone is... Uh, uh, he also... He's like one of the founders of Games Workshop, I think. Whoa, really? Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, what? So, and then he, uh, his fighting fantasy books were a lot of fun. So they're all, like, they also killed you a lot if you made the wrong choice. <laughs> yeah, but then yeah. you, you, actually, yeah, Dark Souls is kind of paced like that. Because when you die in a book, like, you can just, you know, go back to another page and then play through it again but then you also you become like once you finish the book you kind of become curious of like well what were all the paths that would have killed me like i do want to experience that too and you go read like you know what happens yeah this is the value of uh having experience outside of just video games right yeah yeah um yeah like one of the First fighting fantasy books I read was a Sword of the Samurai. I picked it because it had like a really cool skeleton. On it has an undead uh, samurai on the cover. I, I remember that one with the ghostly green fire, right? And and then the samurai kind of looked like Chakan the Forever Man. Yeah, like he's he's half he's like an undead samurai. Um, he's not the main character. I think he's somebody you fight. Oh, but, okay. Um, I just remember in Sword of the Samurai, there's a part of the game where, like, some peasants are in your way and you can choose to, like, kill one of them. But if you do that, they, they all, like, drag you down and kill you. Uh, yeah, consequences. There's consequences yeah. to your actions. Right. Yeah. And, like, there were multiple steps to that action, too. Like, you you had to choose to attack this the, the one of the, the peasants' kids and you had to purposely choose like a barbed arrow that will just like super bleed them out. So you have to be like cruel and vindictive to have like these poor peasants turn on you. Yeah, Ian Livingstone, he's active on Twitter. Like if you message him, he'll likely respond. Nice, nice. Sword of the Samurai, those books were what, like uh, 80s? Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, 
1986. Okay. But let's see, when did um, Fighting Fantasy come out? It's really interesting that, um, like, th this is something we experienced growing up in America, and then somehow uh, Miyazaki also got into these books. Yeah. Um, was he working in Japan or, or, or America? Um, I'm, I, I don't know. I think he was in Japan, but, like, there was a lot of, like, you know, um, when those, like, beta tapes of BioBooster Guyver were going to, like, America and England, like, then the gaming books from the West were also going to Japan. Like, there's a lot of cross-pollination. Yeah. Um, some of the early 80s, like, hobby magazine books I've seen, they had a lot more um, Western miniatures. Okay. Um, yeah, it seemed that, like, the Western fantasy books, like, uh, kind of declined in popularity around, like, maybe 1990. Might have to do with, like, the bubble economy bursting, maybe... Uh, the okay. importers lost money. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I, I just just bringing it back to Dark Souls, like it, it um, it definitely felt to me like a like a throwback to an earlier era of uh, fantasy, too. Yeah. Right. Like um, it, it's it's nothing about it is particularly, you know, modern anime like, but it, it also wasn't very similar to contemporary like Western uh, RPGs or or even like Lord of the Rings. It was like yeah, felt like it was going back to the 80s. The, the yeah, it was post-Tolkien uh, stuff. But uh, pre, you know, before, when it was still very niche. Yeah, um, but uh, there is a lot of, like, apocalyptic manga. Like, I, don't know, I, I need to read Violence Jack because I recently realized, like, holy shit, this is, uh, this is older than Mad Max. And it has, like a wasteland of, like, motorcycle bandits and just this dude killing people. Yeah. The names are also really oddly similar, like Mad Max, Violence Jack. Like, yeah. was there some kind of influence there? So... Yeah. Or was it Zeitgeist? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, just feeling that something dreadful is going to happen. Um, yeah. All right. Okay, okay. Uh, Dark Souls. Any, any, any more thoughts just on... Um, you know. Well, there's Bloodborne. Um, that's, I mean, that's all about, uh, you know, Lovecraftian horror. But uh, it's it's even more than just like, uh, well, I mean, Lovecraft is a big influence. But uh, like the references in Bloodborne go into the people that influenced uh, Lovecraft, I think. Like a uh, big part of Bloodborne is this thing called like, you know, uh, it's blood echoes, like some kind of memory in the blood that makes you stronger or unlocks things. And one of the writers that preceded Lovecraft, that influenced uh, Lovecraft, his name was D.H. Lawrence. He wrote about blood consciousness. Mm. I mean, this is like, you know, people haven't really figured out DNA yet. People are just, you know, trying to figure out what the hell dinosaur fossils are. Like, yeah. he's a very, like, this guy was born in the time when the people before him, it's like, you know, your belief in the church is absolute. That is science. But now science is changing to something that doesn't need the church anymore. And then in uh, Bloodborne, like the founder of the healing church, his name is uh, Lawrence. And he's the one that, like, discovers the power of the blood echoes. Ooh, nice. 
these these are um, so the, these games uh, are very informed by by literature and yeah. um, history. Yeah, they, they, the creators definitely have an awareness of uh, yeah. you know the, the the storytellers and creators that came before them. Well, um, I think it helps to like um, I mean the environment of like Miyazaki would be growing up in. He's in the most uh, the most literate and like the most like mega city country in the world. So if anyone's going to have access to a bunch of disparate like around the world around different times references, like it would just be in like a bookstore in Japan or yeah. the bookstore right next to it. That's also crammed full of stuff. Yeah. And then there's like um, there's so much uh, paranormal books in Japan and in like all across Asia, like China, Taiwan, Thailand. I feel like it's a lot more acceptable to talk about aliens and you know mystic beings and ghosts well in the u.s there was a feeling of like oh if you read those books then you're like some kind of anti-church weirdo or anti-science oh yeah yeah like uh but um they're still fun and then um and then sekiro like uh yeah it's all it's a very focused story and uh, it was like Bloodborne, Dark Souls, Sekiro all hit different notes with coming from like a similar starting point. It's kind of yeah. hard to describe how they're different. When you they look are. at when yeah. you look at Sekiro, though, you can definitely see uh, from software um, hitting a level of refinement that is built up over the decade. Um, oh yeah. Now you're definitely right that it has a different kind of angle and a different way of. Mm. Uh, fighting but there there's and I, I'm struggling to describe it but I played the game a few times I've watched people play it and every time uh, especially w- watching people play it where you can really take in the detail and watch the technical nature of how the game plays but seeing the things like the verticality and uh, the way that the bosses telegraph and the way that you have you can like stealth around and plan things with enemies like like I said there's there's something about it that contains uh, a, a level of ref- not polished, like because they're all pretty polished. Like it's a level of refinement into the the formula that I think uh, just makes it a very satisfying game to play. Even though it's it's got a similar approach to storytelling, it's a little more directive, as you mentioned, but it still leaves a lot to be discovered. Uh, you know, a lot of the storytelling is in the environment. Yeah. Uh, like, do you guys remember the the boss fight where you fight the giant serpent? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when that that's when the serpents introduced in the game, they don't tell you at all what's going on. You're just going to this castle, and you're in this chasm, and then there's just a giant white serpent. Yeah. And then you learn about it. You know, you learn more about those things as you play against it, as you uh, interact with other great serpents throughout the game. But the, those kind of th- moments are something that it feels like they they really started understanding from from Bloodborne, from Dark Souls, uh, how to set up those moments and how to set up the combat so yeah. that it was... Uh, I'm also remembering the boss fight. Uh, there's like a bowl that you that has like uh, like uh, yeah. horns uh, that are on horns fire. Are on fire, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you also, there's no telegraph. And like you just go into the castle and then all of a sudden <laughs> you're in this boss fight. But yeah. the, the, the way that... The mechanics are introduced. It feels so clean, and it feels uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. It doesn't feel random, even though it kind of is. Yeah, I, um, that 
bullfight was a turning point for the in the game for me because like I totally didn't expect it. And it was like, oh shit, like this is do or die. And then I just um I killed it in one go instead of like dying and retrying. Yes. To me that that is like the ultimate um you know, souls born experience. Those moments where you're just like, I'm not gonna give up. I, I, I can't just reset, reload the save. Like, I'm gonna grit my teeth and try to get through this. Yeah. You know? um, because every other boss and mini boss I had fought so far, like, I was super cautious. Like, I would throw like oil and set them on fire and then throw ash at them. Like, and then the bowl, I just fight straight up and I just use the dodging and attacking. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, um, I think it's a testament to how well they constructed the worlds and the built up the mood of the game that um, these moments, uh, you know, they don't just feel like, oh, what WTF, like, so random, huh? It's like, it puts you in that moment. You're just like, holy crap, like, what is that snake? Like, holy moly, like, what is this bowl? Like, it's relentless. Like, it, it's... Um, it's gigantic. Like, yeah. And it's under, it's being used by like the human army. Yeah, it's so, it's effective. It's it's yeah. as weird as it should be, right? It's 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 not like yeah. oh yeah, you know, it's a video game, and you're just like, what's going on? Because it, it, you know, it has buildup and contrast. Yeah. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah, and I, I would say just real quick um, how I would see the progression of uh, Demon Souls to Sekiro is like. Demon Souls would be, I think, almost like a throwback to like wizardry and like D and D, but like yeah. making it a video game, and then using you know elements from uh, arcadey games to make it fun, and then it, you know like Bloodborne felt almost like 3D Castlevania to me, like it got more into the gameplay, uh, yeah. refining the gameplay, and then uh, Sekiro is straight up like a action game. You don't customize your character yeah. at all. It's a very, very like curated experience. Um, in Sekiro, you you have a really good jump button, and like Bloodborne and Dark Souls doesn't have that. Jumping yeah. is only for platforming in yeah. some segments. But um, it's kind of funny is like when I was playing Bloodborne and Dark Souls, I did think like, man, you know, if if I could just like jump and hang on to a ledge, like this game would be solved immediately because there's just this this iron Victorian fence that's blocking my way. Yeah. And then Blood like Sekiro comes out and is like, you have an awesome ninja jump and you have a grappling hook. Yeah. So that it, it almost feels like that might have been the 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 birth of Sekiro was just, well, you know, what if if Dark Souls had a rope? <laughs> I think they they also wanted there to be more uh, attention to uh, the the learning of timing and parrying rather than yeah. learning by dying because the rope allows you to be like I am losing this fight time to get out yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and and that works all of the time until you start fighting the enemy ninjas that can also jump really far like really far. Um, Oh yeah, the parry. That's true. They teach like, you that uh, you can do it, and then they subvert that expectation. <laughs> yeah, like I ran away from everything uh, before, like for most of the game, like early part of the game, because I could just rope away and then go reset and heal. 
because I was so afraid of dying. Because um, I didn't know what the death mechanic was. I didn't look it up. But I was just going to like, well, like when you die, like everyone else is uh, getting sick. And I'm like, oh, man, like I don't want to, you know, have like I don't want to role play wise hurt these people. And then like gameplay wise, I don't want options closed to me. So I just became super cautious. I, I actually, uh, when I went back and I watched, uh, you know, streamers or content creators yeah. playing through the game after I had beaten it, and they were in the first part of the game where they start dying a lot, and I'm like, no, you're making the world sick, stop, before they <laughs> yeah, really yeah. discover what's going on, because the, they, they reveal the mechanic to you pretty slowly, like, they do tell you about it, but yeah. most everybody I've watched play back through the game, it's, it's emotional to watch them discover, because you, especially some of the early bosses, when you're learning, you die a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, it's uh, it's another kind of that indirect storytelling that uh, you, you start getting a very uh, like I said really yeah. strong reaction to. And then it's also like a lesson. Like uh, Sekiro does give you a lot of tools early on, but then by the end you just realize, well, all of these things are not necessary. You just need to parry, dodge, stomp, counter. Like, just fighting things head-on is actually the ultimately the, the most efficient and way of defeating an enemy. Yeah. Yeah, the parrying... Um, I mean, I, I never liked the, the parrying in Dark Souls. And then in Bloodborne, they turn it into a gun, which is, is different, but still kind of unusual. Because I thought the parrying in Dark Souls was way too, like, do like high risk high reward but in a way where like there's also a strong chance element due to like lag when fighting other people online that and then like uh, the way people use it efficiently in duels it turns into exploits where like oh if you know you actually turn around it makes it harder for the person to tell when your parry is starting up like it turned into something that i didn't enjoy but then Sekiro comes in with just, you know, timing parries. That's it. I would like to go back to the roots of Richmond and I's friendship and mention that the most satisfying parry in all of gaming has got to be Street Fighter Third Strike. Oh, yes. Heck yes. yeah. Absolutely. And I think it. whenever I hear uh, talk about parrying in this decade, because it is now a much more common mechanic I, like i said it, it made its way into games like fallen order whenever i yeah. hear it i go back and i'm like you know there's uh, parrying uh, as a mechanic that is satisfying going back to a game like third strike it's satisfying because when i think about what made third strike good and what made parrying satisfying is it's because the inputs are so reactive to you which yeah. means that it's very very satisfying because the timing becomes really important and then the success of it is also like a little mini, it's just a yeah. middle, little mini triumph, and the animation and the sound all play into that. Yeah, yeah, it's, absolutely. I mean, it's the reverse of blocking. You must walk forward into an attack, and that kind of like, that was going against like all the conventions of video game fighting at the time. Oh, yeah. yeah walk into the attack, yeah. It's the ultimate risk versus reward system because uh, it's yeah. it's it's not even reactive. It's it's predictive. It, you you yeah. have to be so confident in knowing what the person's going to do next that you're willing to make yourself totally vulnerable if if you've misread them. That's yeah. true. It's true. Yeah. And um, I mean that's what a parry is in 
in like real life martial arts. Like if you just mistime like your opponent's actions, then you're just open to just be hit. Yeah. And that's like um yeah, like I I like uh learning different sword fighting like German longsword and kendo and like Ito Ryu Kenjutsu and yeah, the Street Fighter three parrying just it just feels the most satisfying compared to like actually practicing and sparring with the sword. R- Richmond Richmond was it uh was it Daigo that has that video where he parries yeah. an entire Chun Li super? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Think of yeah. the level of level level of confidence on display yeah. to parry an entire super like that. Yeah, yeah, that and, was... and with with like you know thousands of dollars on the line too. That was Didn't like he have a... no health as well? He had like one yeah. hit left too. It's well, see, if he blocked, he would lose. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he knew what was coming. So th- th- that that's such a brilliant moment because Justin Wong went for the easy thing, right? He's like, okay. Uh, if this guy messes up parrying even once, he's dead, right? So he he did something predictable like that. That was sort of the, you know, like obviously that that is a pretty safe thing to do in that moment. What he didn't anticipate was that this guy could just had like ice in his veins. He just did not care. <laughs> like he yeah. anticipated it, perfectly reacted to it. And then one of the really well, cool things. Uh, yeah. Well, Justin Wong, he just threw out the super like without regard to setting it up, just counting on, like, there's no way he could parry this. Right. Right? And then, well, and he had a pretty safe amount of life. life oh, bar, yeah. Right? But, okay, here, here, here's why that moment is extra amazing. In the middle of parrying, there's a moment where Chen Li pauses and then starts hitting again. Daigo took that moment to jump, continue parrying, and then set up a longer jump-in combo. <laughs> like... Uh, you know, doing just enough damage to like uh, obliterate the guy's life bar. Like that's why that moment was so awesome. Like it, it had so many layers to it. Yeah, it's yeah. it was like a real life shonen manga moment. Yeah. Like like Justin Wong did what what Seto Kaiba would do, and then Yugi mind crushed him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, all right, okay. Um, oh, man, I, I could talk about Street Fighter 3 all day. Okay, let's... Uh, okay, as the moderator, I got I to gotta, I gotta pull us back to the topic. Um, so we were talking about Game of the Decade, Dark Souls, um, and its its influences. And, and, of course, it's so fun to go on, on these tangents, too. But um, any any uh, closing comments about Dark Souls and sort of its, its legacy? I would say that... Uh... It, it had, like, a great sense of, like, stylized realism. Like, it's not totally realistic, but, like, just the basics of timing, distance, you know, um, and uh, having, like, a... Uh, what's the word for, like, you know, when you do something? You're, like, you're, you're in the animation before you can do it again. But, it like, it made sense if you're swinging a gigantic hammer that... You're not going to immediately ready the the uh, recovery frames. Yeah, recovery, right? That's Startup. Like, um, yeah. You know, yeah, and and recovery frames. Yeah, like it's made uh, people a lot more aware of those things, and uh, I think it it kind of like kicked off a lot of interest in like, well, what is realistic weapons fighting like? Um, Darks. It doesn't do it realistically. There are many things I criticize about it, but like it it was a start 
Like mm. uh, now, like an axe and a sword, the difference isn't like just a numbers and chance thing. It's actually how you wield it. You know, the timing, the recovery. Right. Yeah. I mean, in in previous RPGs, for the most part, like a melee weapon was largely like cosmetic, and then like the stats were different. But like the 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 way you play with it in 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 terms of it affecting gameplay wasn't necessarily yeah. I mean, that different. Um, Dark Souls didn't start this like you know, know Fantasy but... Star, uh, Monster Hunter, definitely. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Uh, the Zelda games where you can get different weapons, like yeah. Secret of Mana, but it pop like it made these concepts uh, very obvious. Yeah, you know, I, I just want to say one more thing about that. I think um, the theme of Dark Souls uh, really resonated with people, and it really, uh, I think that's why they were able to make a, a more difficult game mainstream. Like, um, yeah, Monster Hunter is very sunny very very like positive so like you kind of feel bad when the dragon kicks your ass right like but uh dark souls is is very dark Uh, like we said before they 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 make dying a core part of the gameplay and the story but i think just overall the dark theme of it makes people more accepting of the uh, difficulty oh yeah like this is this is where you're supposed to die yeah that that Um, plays into uh, what I was going to add to it, which is I think something that doesn't come up a lot with Dark Souls that I wanted to make sure we add is the boss design is really, really thoughtful. Uh, I, I remember a quote from the, the game director who he talked about he didn't just want you fighting fearful enemies. He wanted there to be a sense of he talked about like contradiction and there to be a sense of purpose and history to enemies the idea that just because you're fighting an enemy doesn't mean that they're your enemy, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember, um, well, yeah, yeah, like, uh, a famous example is the the Undead Dragon, right? Like, he, he talked about the scene with Undead Dragon, like, he didn't want um, the artist to make it disgusting, right? That, that would be the obvious thing to do, make this really gross, rotting, fetid creature. Um, he wanted to remind people that it used to be uh, something very, you know, strong and proud, and he wanted people to feel the the tragedy of its uh, its undeath, right? Like this thing is just a shadow of of, of what it was. Yeah, they, there was some empathy, right? There's 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 a little bit of empathy for everyone in that game, good or bad. And you know, um, uh, got, going off of your point, Sean, like I think for a good while before Dark Souls, a lot of games forgot about bosses right like weren't there like a string of like really popular games with like no boss encounters like like the uh, call of duty games do they have bosses really uh you know you know call of duty i think you're right though uh which is to say they had perhaps uh they they kind of traded out bosses for uh set piece moments yeah yeah they they may have had something akin to a boss fight where you might fight a vehicle like in a call of duty game but like ultimately it usually just translated to uh, an enemy that had more health. Uh, it, it wasn't a notably different encounter. It, it wasn't that classic style that you expect out of a soul. Like, soul, you know, souls blocks you in with a wall, and you're yeah. in an open area, and it's like you are you are now engaged with this this enemy, and it is a specifically designed uh, encounter. It has mechanics and personality 
so that kind of thing did, I think you're right, it left games for a while in in that it, you, you did have kind of, you always have your, your trash or your fodder enemies, uh, and you have uh, set pieces. That, that, that's the word I keep coming to mind, is the, the idea that we, we traded out bosses for set piece enemies. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and then Dark Souls brought back the very traditional sense of a boss. Yeah, and um, then Call of Duty afterwards started adding in a lot more robots as, like, the cool encounter that happens. Yeah, even, even I think, Assassin's Creed, um, it, it didn't really have, like, boss encounters, right? Other than, like, the last boss fight in the first one with I'd say the, early uh, the teleporting on, dude. Yeah, early on, I think Assassin's Creed uh, intent, which I really liked was that the boss encounter was getting to the assassination. Uh, like, you had the person that you were assassinating, yeah. the encounter was actually planning your route yeah, yeah, and then yeah. being able yeah. to assassinate them cleanly. Yeah. That was kind of the encounter. It, it, it had something similar in terms of pacing, but, you know, it wasn't, like, like a big, yeah, traditional, like, this is the mini-boss, this is the big boss. Like, But I think the, the later Assassin's Creed did introduce... Like, yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely did after that. Yeah, I, I don't want to go off too much on on the side note, but you know what shooter did have classical boss fights that was really fun is Titanfall Two. Oh yeah. Uh, and they and it was they, they weren't like as complex as uh, as bosses we're talking about in Dark Souls, but I really appreciated the idea that uh that there was it, they gave you that kind of there's an area there is a and it was kind of like metal it reminded me a lot of like a, a low gear kind of Metal Gear where the bosses yeah. like they're introduced to you they have personality yeah. they have a specific mechanic they have a pattern I mean pretty much all the bosses in Titanfall they die as soon as you meet them because you kill yeah. them but but you, you know, know their name yes you do <laughs> I think that's, that's super important. important yeah yeah like um there's the first boss fight is that like crazy bloodthirsty uh, mercenary who just likes killing people. And uh, before you fight him, he's like talking to you over the the speaker about how he wants to kill you. It's it's pretty straightforward, but it's just like I know his name, like I hear his words, I know his personality, and now we get to kill each other. Yeah, yeah there's something about that uh, that idea that I I, I don't want to say Metal Gear invented it, but they probably popularized it where. Uh, when you have the initial encounter, when you first meet them, there's a very clear, like, almost pose and setup yeah. of, like, this character, and it shows yeah. their personality, it shows you who they are, and it's very memorable. Yeah. I mean, like, if you were to describe, you know, like, you know, in Metal Gear Solid 1, you, you're you sneaking into this base, and you meet this cowboy, and he really likes to torture people. And like it, it's really weird trying to describe <laughs> it, and then they, it just happens. Yeah. Like a a side note about the like a side like just a little side note about the the enemy names uh, the boss names from Metal Gear. Yeah. Uh, when Richmond and I had our company, all of our employee computers were named after Metal Gear bosses. They were like <laughs> the pain, great. the boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, good times. Yeah. Um... Okay. Okay. So, uh, are, are there any other games that that, that you, you all feel um, are contenders for the most influential game of the decade of the 2010s? I, I have. I wanted to mention. So, I have a game that I don't enjoy the game specifically itself, but I believe it spawned a large variety of influential games as well. Which is, I'm gonna talk about uh, Elder Scrolls Skyrim. Yeah. Uh, I think. 
We you talked earlier about how there was an open world kind of aspect uh, to games that wasn't very directed, and I think Skyrim set a a benchmark for uh, the kind of engagement in open world. And like the reason I say that I, I didn't personally enjoy Skyrim more because of the setting and uh, the the art style isn't my favorite, but I do believe that it led to games like The Witcher Three, like Breath of the Wild, um, mm. and it also kind of created an explosion in, uh, like, this has always been a Bethesda thing, but an explosion in modding as part of modern video game culture. Uh, It's something that you see in, of course, in Skyrim, but you see it now in games like Fallout. Uh, We've all seen the Resident Evil 2 meme where it's got Thomas the Tank Engine as uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, chasing you around, and it's absolutely terrifying. Like, to me, uh, those all things can, those lines can all be pulled all the way back to, I think Skyrim might have been 2011. So it was one of the the ones that really introduced a baseline of concepts that I think we see in a lot of the later decade games that uh, I think create much better open world and adventure style games. Yeah. It's uh, it kind of does everything that like Dark Souls didn't do. Yeah, I'd say they're 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 like the extremes of uh yeah the the how how to approach a um a big an RPG that feels really big. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, I think the the thing that keeps coming to mind with the open world, why I mention uh Breath of the Wild as well is. Initially, when I was thinking about this, I was like, well, I almost wanted to, to start with Breath of the Wild because you might argue that it was also the game that may have uh, been one of the saviors of Nintendo for this generation. Uh, but yeah. also, a lot of the things that people talk about, uh, and uh, even things that made me not want to play it at first, it being open <laughs> world, you mentioned a lot of mechanics that are, are new but are we're kind of introduced to this idea like, oh, you can take on the boss whenever you want. <laughs> that's a that's kind of a, a newer mechanic that started making its way into games as well, where yeah. uh, you're no longer linearly driven to do something. The open world becomes something that isn't there just to make it feel big. It, it actually uh, adds value. It's very, you know, and The Witcher, I think, did this really well, which is it has so much to do. There's so many side quests. Uh, and the, the narrative is well done, but you can really engross yourself in everything to do in the world. It doesn't feel like anything, it, it, especially those two games, are added in as buffer. Uh, they're really there to add to the indirect storytelling. They're there to uh, add weight to the world. They're there to make you feel like you actually have choice, that we're not just giving you uh, a variety of fetch, you know fetch quests that you know are all over the place to make it feel like you have choices. I think it's they those games really do feel uh there's no breaks like everything is uh seamlessly one one continuous story um that does seem to be like what Skyrim brought to the table you know you don't like cut to another zone you're just going there seamlessly walking the whole way yeah yeah that's that's yeah Definitely what I associate with uh, Skyrim. It has definitely had a lasting impact, yeah. I think also, um, like, things that happen outside of just, like, the player directly doing something, like uh, games where there's naturally different factions. Like, uh, you know, Metal Gear Solid 4 said it was going to do that, but it didn't quite happen, like, as organically as I thought it would. 
like, okay, there's like army A and B fighting, but then it's more like a set piece instead of like an active thing. But then in Skyrim, you know, you have interactions between different factions, you know, animals and bandits. In uh, Breath of the Wild, I've seen videos where like people drag different bosses together and then they just start fighting each other. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so. Uh, and I, I also wanted to mention, I, I didn't mention it in my initial portion of it, but I also yeah. think that Skyrim ultimately led to games like uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It, it, it is this this kind of uh, intersection of trying to give uh, a world weight while also being able to tell compelling stories. And I think, uh, Richard mentioned this earlier again, I think going into this decade, open world games were not well considered for telling good stories or having a, you know, a lot of engaging narrative or having something that yeah. they kind of relied a lot. If you look at the the EverQuests uh, of of the world and and whatnot, or the Neverwinter Nights, like they focus a lot more on having a character that is yours and customizing it, and it was less about role playing and it was more about that that kind of existing in a world and being some, a character that you created and the shift toward it is a character that you create, but now it exists in a world that has, that has weight and your place in that world is affected by how you play and who you interact with. Yeah. Uh, and it's much more of a, a different take on what I think we originally as an industry thought open world gaming was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could say, I think maybe it shifted the focus from being a sandbox to being to conveying like a sense of a persistent world well, you know, that you're a part of. Your imprint on the world, like you changed something in the world. And then the step after that is like the world changes even without your input. Mm. Or your input does something that like changes something way down the line later. Um, I mean, this idea has been around for, like I remember playing the MS-DOS uh, RPG uh, the uh, Dark Sun Shattered Lands. Oh, and yeah. uh, there were a lot of... Um, I mean, it was an MS-DOS game, so it wasn't that big. But it did feel really big, and like uh, it did feel like my decisions were changing things here and there. Like I could you know, make an alliance between two different wasteland villages, and then something changes. Or I'm trying to get like uh, everyone to band together to fight against the Empire, and then depending on how many allies I have, that's that will change the final boss battle as I'll have more allies come and help me, like, uh, help me out. Wow, uh, yeah. Is, wasn't that, like, a Mass Effect mechanic, Sean? I think I think you mentioned that before. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think it was. Well, and, isn't it like all of your characters will fight with, like, a chance of dying in the final battle? Oh, oh, well... It's not, it's a little, it's quite a bit more prescriptive than that, right? Like the, um, I wouldn't say it's a chance of dying. It's, there's prerequisites that the game works through okay. from a criteria perspective. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, especially in the second game where you end with a suicide mission, uh, it is possible for all of your, your teammates to survive the mission, but there is a prerequisite check on each one of them. So okay. it actually, there is, it, to a degree, there is a saving throw kind of mechanic yeah. but i seem to, to recall that specifically the way that it worked is that if you got all the prerequisites for each person and then you sent them in a specific order and then you upgraded your ship in a specific way 
that the cascading effect of each person would prevent the death of each one if you did it the right way. Like, for instance, you had to do the side quest in order for them to, the personal side quest in order for them to be loyal to you so that they would stay in a position and rather than abandoning it, you would have had oh, to have made okay. sure that you added a specific gun to your, to the Normandy so that when it got hit with the missile, they wouldn't have been uh, in that spot that they would have moved to because they didn't trust you and it wouldn't have got blown up because you you had the improve. You know what I mean? It had like a whole kind okay. of cascading set, yeah. but it really was a logic check at the end of the day. Like, um, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, they couldn't randomly die. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess um, I, I just bring that up because that, that seems to be, uh, I, I think, a, a pattern I'm seeing about all, all the games we're talking about, the influential games. Um, it seems like they're 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 not necessarily they're definitely not the first games to attempt to do these things, right? To to build persistent worlds or to um, have your actions affect the gameplay. Now, this is stuff uh, games have been doing for a long time, but um, I think they, they still they went back to these things and did them with uh, greater uh, fidelity than has uh, been possible uh, before. Yeah. I, I think it is true that Bioware uh, with Mass Effect uh, was one, and a lot of the Star Wars uh, games, <laughs> the Knights of the Old Republic games, was the first to play with, uh, especially narratively, that your choices would have impact. But uh, if you look deeper at it, I think that the industry is starting to move much farther down this path. I think Bioware just kind of poked at it, which is you have choices and they do matter. But uh, a lot of the storylines would ultimately wrap back around to the same kind of conclusion. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. just uh, it was, you were just kind of customizing how you got there and the way in which you got there. I've been playing a lot of the the storyline expansions from Star Wars The Old Republic. Uh, and they have a lot of that in there, which is that you you are often presented with. Uh, light side and dark side cho- choices, and uh, it's one of those cases where you can totally just kill someone, and that's the dark side choice, and then they're just dead, uh, and then they can't help you later. <laughs> so it, it usually amounts to like certain parts of the game are not as easy because you killed the person that was going to help you. Uh, yeah. But I think that the story still makes its way out to the same narrative conclusion, uh, and I think that that is something that I I expect we'll see in the next decade is more. Uh, like when we talk about games that are coming out, like uh, Cyberpunk 2077, I suspect that there will be a lot. Uh, at least what is promised is that there will be a lot of effect to the story in terms of the way that you live in the world. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, like, is there really any ending to that game? Because I don't even really know what the premise of, like, like what is the protagonist doing? It does seem, like, pretty open-ended. Like, is that a game that they'll just keep on adding content to and you just keep on dwelling in that world? Cyberpunk? Yeah. Because, like, say, Red Dead Redemption 2, like, you are a specific person with a specific goal and a specific journey. But Cyberpunk is more like, you know, here you are, you're a street samurai, go do cyberpunk stuff in a cool city. How, how focused was the storyline in, in Skyrim? Would you say, Sean? Andy? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I think it it was it was the same uh, that thing that that uh, Andy just said is the the big trendsetter that we had, which is if you compare it to like I said, a, a just pull like an EverQuest or something. Uh, the you're a you're a specific hero or character, and you're on a journey. Like it's not like The Witcher Three, uh, Breath of the Wild, Red Dead are all you are a specific person, and yeah. you're on a journey. 
Uh, Skyrim did add the the um, it's actually a trope that I I quite enjoy, uh, which is actually in uh, uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic. I mean, you'll see it is this kind of idea where uh, you build up into uh, a hero, uh, and but it's it's done, uh, and this may have been influenced from Mass Effect, where there's enough of your identity rolled up into who you are that it can be kind of templated onto someone in the same way that they did Shepard in Mass Effect. But there's yeah. still flexibility to customize your character and make your choices different and, you know, make your version of that character different. Uh, but it's still, uh, like Skyrim, still had a directed story uh, that you would play through. There was still, a, you know, a reason for your being. There was still a, uh, you know, there, there was a, a mythology that built up around your character. Uh, so rather okay. than you just being some random person randomly in the world, which is more of like the EverQuest World of Warcraft model, where you're, where in those worlds, you're, you're more, uh, you know, you're, you might be a hero or something, but ultimately you're there observing the events or mm. participating in them, but you're not driving them in the same way that the games we're talking about are. And that might've been one of the, the, the changes to open world games. Okay. So I, I guess we, we were discussing, uh, the most influential games. Um, I, I think, Let's just talk about like the games that we just liked the most. Yeah, yeah. Right, our our favorite games. Um, so a really obvious one, um, and and this this ties into the games we we were discussing too. It was um, you know, Breath of the Wild. <laughs> that 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 was just such a well-made game. Like I I think if I had to just pick like the the most uh, finely impressively crafted and just incredibly refined game uh, of the decade that, that that would be it breath of the wild just just fantastically put together um, like and it, it, it weaved together all these things uh, from games that came before it you know so so like it was really open like really influenced by by Skyrim right like it was more open than any any Zelda g- game ever has been um, and then just the the sheer amount of stuff that you could do um, not through the menu, but like through actual, like, you know, real time, really responsive, polished Nintendo gameplay. Like, that was so impressive. Uh, you know, like, uh, I, I actually didn't mind the weapon breaking. <laughs> like, I didn't mind, like, just constantly collecting new stuff and using it. Um, and it, it does, like, the controls were so good that uh, I, I'm, you know, you guys know, like, I'm pretty terrible at most 3D games, I'm especially bad. At shooters, I'm just yeah. not very good at shooters. I don't know, like something about it doesn't usually gel with me. But like in Breath of the Wild, as soon as I got face, it is because you don't I got want the bow. to actually learn it. Like, yeah, when okay. I got the bow in Breath of the Wild, it was so intuitive. Like I, I was like jumping off the horse and like headshotting people, you know. Um, um, it's using the motion control to to aim laterally, right? Yeah, yeah, it was very intuitive. It wasn't just waggling uh, the 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 uh, analog stick, which is just not as fine controls as a mouse. But holding uh, a tablet in my hand, moving that around uh, for the the fine tuning part, like that was super intuitive. I think uh, it's that's that's how you would aim like a bow or a gun. You move your hand through space. Yeah, yeah. So so. Yeah, that game took um, all these trends, you yeah. know, and then and then just applied this level of. of I mean, of you're like, 
you've shot a revolver in real life and you were surprisingly accurate, right? Yes, I remember the first time I went to a shooting range uh, with with a friend. Um, first time I ever shot a gun, I was like super nervous. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, they're really dangerous and um, yeah, they just told me like, hey, don't worry, like you know, have some trust in yourself. And they just explained like line the front part with, you know, line the sight with the. I, I don't even remember the terms, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I lined the little bit at the end with a little bit closer to. <laughs> And I pulled the trigger, and I, I hit, you know, yeah, yeah, got got a headshot. That was pretty cool. Um, I, I guess being an artist gives you a steady hand. Yeah, this is. Um, I think that's that's what. Yes, the the switch and the Wii U motion controls for Splatoon and other games with shooting just. It's just the right way to do it. It just feels great, like. Uh, yeah, yes. I got pretty good at Splatoon 1, but yeah. um, I haven't played much of Part 2. Yeah. Um, I, f- I feel as as we were talking about Nintendo that I cannot help but think about two games in this decade together that are yeah. continuing exactly what Richmond's talking about in terms of pure joy and control, which is uh, yeah. Super Mario Galaxy 2 and Mario Odyssey. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh. Do you guys know that uh, Super Mario Galaxy 2 did come out in this decade? It was in 2010. Oh, oh, I didn't. Oh. Hey, okay. they made the cutoff. Yeah. yeah. Two did, two, was... just to clarify. Super yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, two made the cutoff. <laughs> uh, okay. Which, uh, there, there's uh, the, uh, when I think about favorite games, and you were even talking about, oh, you know, something that one of Nintendo's best, and I was like, man, my mind wants to agree with you, except games like Odyssey and Super Mario Galaxy are just like, they they feel like they're, they're associated to just pure joy, and... This kind of era of gaming that didn't take itself too seriously, it was very, um, I don't know, if fun's not quite the right word, but uh, whimsical uh, mm. in, a, in a way that I, I feel like something that a lot of games are much more, you know, much more mature and serious now. Yeah. And I feel like Mario's continued down this path of uh, embracing uh, its, its tone. It's, uh, it's like playing with a really excellent toy in your hand. Like, if yeah. you have a, a favorite action figure or model, you want to pl- place it on terrain. And then Mario is... It's like you feel... I mean, when we talked about Death Stranding, we got into Mario. Like, you feel the rocks under your feet. Yeah. Mario games are so excellent at that that physicality. Yeah. yeah. Like, I've been playing Odyssey. and I mean, just rolling into a ball down a, like, down a hill... It just feels awesome. <laughs> it, it made me realize, like, man, I haven't rolled down a hill in, like, 20 years. Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be too afraid of, like, staining my shirt now. I gotta gotta, gotta fix that. <laughs> I gotta go find a hill to roll down sometime. Yeah, just, I don't know, I'm sure one of those Uniqlo shirts is grass-resistant, yeah. you know. This is a tangent, but uh, when we are all kids, like, all of the commercials for detergent was about removing grass stains, right? Yeah. You don't sure. see that anymore. Yeah, it, sh- it sure was. <laughs> yeah. You don't see that anymore. What you happened? Don't. You don't. Aren't the, aren't the commercials all now about, like, just maintaining colors, you know, making it yeah, yeah. You know, gentle yeah, and like, clean? Don't, won't fade. Yeah, you're right. It's not about removing, like, you know, the effects of activity. It's, it's about preserving... <laughs> 
it's about it, stillness. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's yeah. that's kind of like the Dark Souls plot, you know, you're trying to cling on to something by just preventing all action. Ah, that's deep. So so yeah. there's a I had a funny experience in when I was in Bali, I was like baking a German cake with this Dutch lady that lives there for her her father's 90th birthday and I was like feeding a kiln with like dried up uh, banana leaves. Whoa. And um, she was explaining, like, I have to put a lot of fire and heat into the kiln, or if um, if it's not hot enough, then, like, when we put the cake batter in, the kiln will actually suck the heat out of the cake. It's like, wow, does that really work that way? Like, wait a minute, is that the plot of Dark Souls? Is it physically <laughs> how a kiln works? <laughs> the kiln of the first flame? Yeah. But it... <laughs> That actually gave me a new insight into the Dark Souls story. It's like, wait, the heat is leaving. Like, instead of leaving the world, I think it's actually returning to the Earth so it can replenish itself. Because ah. you're actually stealing the heat from the Earth. That's why everything's dead and only a few super-powered beings are still on fire. Ah. Wow. Like, yeah, maybe Miyazaki did bake a cake in a kiln and figured this out. Wow. Okay, back to, yeah, Mario and Nintendo goodness. <laughs> I was going to add as well that I think uh, reason, one thing I, I really like the, the Mario Odyssey Galaxy approach is we're talking a little bit about the open world stuff, and I feel like they took a different approach to that, which is that obviously the game still really encourages you to explore, and I think a big tentpole was like, yeah, throw your cap at stuff, see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's not quite the same traditional idea, but it definitely wasn't a linear, just a linear experience. Yeah, um, I think it's, you discover things for yourself. Um, I'd say like Richmond, when you talk about Breath of the Wild, it, it reminds me of like when we were both little kids and I'd watch you play Mario World and you yeah. would fly around with the cape. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, like I, in I, Mario World, that was a game where you throw the shell interesting things happen and then you got that cape that has like the swooping physics and you have to like dive to gain energy and then like get the cape to i don't know the exact physics but like you know to turn that energy into altitude again it it's so hard to describe but like when you do it it feels so so right yeah, yeah. like you we didn't know like you know, flight physics. We just knew that this is how the cape works for flying. It just yeah. made sense. Yeah. It was kind of like uh, intro to aerodynamics, right? Because you, you needed the, the clearance. You had to run a certain distance yeah. to get fast enough to, like, leave the ground. And Yeah. Yeah. I had to bob um, and weave in there. I would say, um, like, you know, other games of the decade, uh, Captain Toad. Like, talked oh, about yeah? that in a previous uh, podcast. Um, I mean, it's it's the opposite of Mario in that Mario has so much power over the, over the environment that you Mario is, like, changing the environment. Well, Captain Toad is totally at the mercy of the environment. Instead, Captain Toad has to observe and then go with the flow because he can't jump. His backpack is too heavy. <laughs> That game is so dang cute, too. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the cutest games I've ever seen. Yeah. 
Like, um, it also has this Dark Souls vibe to it because it is about learning. But instead of, like, learning how this giant attacks you, it's learning how the entire level is moving. Notable events of the 2010s, I mean, uh, 2010s began with the last 2D main Pokemon game, Pokemon Black and White. It had those really great animated sprites. Yeah, that game was beautiful. And it... It had um, the most serious Pokemon story, too. Like, uh, the, the Team Rocket-type group was Team Plasma. They're dressed as, uh, like, they're Crusaders. And uh, they used, uh, their symbol is the Chiro, which is um, one of the first, like, Christian symbols used by the first Christian emperor. And he said it was a symbol that came to him in a dream, that if he wrote it, like, he put it on his shield, and it brought them victory. What, what does it look like? Chiro. It's a, those are two Greek characters. It looks like a P and an X. Oh, okay. And that's a, the Team Plasma logo. And then in Pokemon Black and White, like Team Plasma is actually using dream-eating Pokemon to put ideas into people's dreams to, to make them give up their Pokemon because it's cruelty. But... It turns out their leadership wants everyone to give up their Pokemon, so they're the only ones with Pokemon in the region, so they can conquer everyone else. But then it turns out, like, their actual founder is uh, actually someone who really does believe that, like, you know, Pokemon should only be partners and not, like, be put in Pokeballs. So there's many layers of, like, the, the faults of, like, ideals and organized governments or religions and you can have a good idea but then a a system that puts the power of decision into a few people's hands like can lead to a lot of corruption mm. and this was pokemon black and white right yes it was about like having a black and white view of the world yeah i i i i love when a, a game or a story a movie can have sort of that that airtight uh, theme. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Final Fantasy XIV gets really into that. Like, uh, just played through the story arc where, like, uh, turns out, like, there's people in the evil empire that's invading that actually don't want war. They just don't have the political power, and, like, it's dangerous for them to speak out. And, uh, like, I just recently finished a story arc in Doma where it's like... Uh, the eastern, like, Final Fantasy VI, like, Cyan Doma-themed place. One of the villains is uh, someone who benefited from the Imperial invasion. Like, she was uh, horribly treated, like, as a Doman citizen because of circumstance. So it was, uh, it really tapped into, like, sometimes tragedy is just, tragedy and you've done so much evil you can't really redeem yourself in that lifetime either i don't know just every like i only realized like the way that character was designed uh yotsuyu like her flower theme i only realized it after i played through that story like oh that flower is the uh it's called the uh spider lily and it's also called like a hell flower and in buddhism it's associated with like uh, something that blooms in hell or like a symbol of reincarnation. And th like, this was a flower associated with this character? 
Yeah, like she just wore it in her hair, and then in her boss fight when she transforms, like a big flaming version of the flower bursts out, and then she takes on a new form. Mm. And like, um, I mean, there's a lot of lore videos on like Dark Souls bosses and symbolism and all that, but um, Final Fantasy XIV does it like really well. Like, uh, they. The only time that Flower was named was like in the boss fight with his character. That's the only reason I actually went and looked it up. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Like, you know, if she's going to say this line, it like it just stuck out to me. And then I just found out so much information about the flower. Like um, in Japan, when the flower blooms, it's seen as the coming of uh, fall. And then uh, when you fight that boss and her flower energy like aura blooms like the terrain changes from like a uh, city setting into autumn leaves falling it's like yeah they just hit all of these uh these notes super nicely like a, a very nice painting uh, or woodblock print ukiyo-e or i don't know I'm, I'm i feel like this must there must be some kind of like edo period tragedy that this character is based off of because the little I know like there are many tragic heroines or just stories of like being crushed by society and well, it's, a, it's the flower that blooms in hell right yeah 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 but it's also a flower of reincarnation so her living life was the hell that cultivated this flower for her to transform hmm. like she was in hell the moment she was born like man all of this just hits really nicely. And the wow. music was really good. Um, like it blends in uh, like the Fall Fantasy VI science theme, the Doma theme. But it blends it in like most of the time that theme is used in Fall Fantasy XIV as a heroic theme for like the Doman heroes. But then for this specific character that theme is used as the melody of a male cho- uh, male chorus and the lyrics are the ones that are like chastising her. Mm. Yeah, it's it's one of the best video game experiences I've had and it came in uh, an MMO. Like uh, normally you think of it as like, okay, you know, it's like just lots of grinding, gathering things. But, but 14 has like, I mean, I think 14 came out in like 2010s. It's grown through this decade into something really awesome it's really flowered into something beyond what it started as oh absolutely we were we, and we've talked about that i think uh over the last few podcasts but yeah. it's something that i've been I, I mentioned before is that recently last like last year and everything everybody was telling me just like especially um Shadowbringers, like everyone was just telling me like hey this is one of the best game of experience I've, I've ever had you know, Dang. so, and the, the fact that it happens in an MMO uh, is, it, it, you're right, it, it feels weird, right? It feels, it doesn't seem to align with what we expect out of MMOs, uh, even though that has definitely been changing over the, over the decade. Yeah, they, it's interesting the way they use the social aspects. Um, like, 14 does things where, um, you know, after you accomplish a big story arc, like in, uh, in Heaven's Word, you, it's the war between the uh, Ishgard like a very like high fantasy European knights city versus the dragons. Like um, 
that story is done. But then in one of the patches, they're like, you know, Ishgard, uh, a lot of the, the city is in ruins. So now you can uh, rebuild the city long af- like after you fought the war because the people are still there. And the reason you fought the war is to let people live in peace. So now it's time to give them nice houses. Like, it's just a very sweet sentiment. Um, Fall Fantasy XIV is a very sympathetic game. Like, it's very much about the motivation. It's like, you know, Metal Gear will have, like, the boss explain their feelings and their reasons. And, but fourteen can do that across, like, a really big MMO and then revisit things that you did, like, a year ago. Like, they use that MMO the nature of an MMO in a really interesting way to just uh, make you feel really good about helping this persistent world. Were you also mentioning how Final Fantasy, when it start 14, when it started, was very much about being in a beautiful world, and they had to kind of evolve away from that focus, but it doesn't mean that the world isn't still beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, like before like every fall like the goal of fall fantasy is to push the limits of like what a video game can do so the first version of 14 was like you know very graphically and animation impressive but then there was just like something went wrong with organizing everything and like it was just an unfinished game and um they're revising the first portion of the game now like uh, to just add all of the refinement that they learned later on because right now if you buy 14 and you play through it like the first 60 hours of the game is actually not very fun and the story is actually pretty pretty wonky in that it's doing a lot of uh fetch quests but they're changing that oh my gosh 60 hours is a lot to get through yeah but i did it because i wanted cooler armor But that's like that's the traditional motivation. Right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, that and then, sounds like a normal MMO, right? And then by now it's like, man, I just want to to help this these virtual people. I want to to bring peace to this horribly like this villain who's had a hellish life and even like the really unrepentant evil villains like uh, there's a uh, the son of the emperor Xenos. Like, 14 does this thing with dialogue choices where it doesn't change the outcome, but you're, the way that you view something is still personal and important. And there's one where, like, the evil emperor's son who's just killed a lot, like, he's unrepentantly evil, but he calls you, like, his first friend because you're the person that he can't kill and you fought each other a bunch of times. And then he just, his he has a simple question, like, do you accept him as a friend? I was like, yeah, I said, yes. And he said, well, that's nice, but it won't like, like being uh, friends doesn't change the things that we've done to each other. So we still have to fight, mm-hmm. but just like being <laughs> able to reject him or accept him changed the perception of that fight and also changed like how the battle you perceive the battle ending. Right, so it's not about affecting the plot outcome. It's it's about uh, you know the emotional. Um, yeah, what kind of warrior of light are you? Like every you know millions of players are going through the same plot, but then they'll be 
telling their feelings of the story in different ways. Like, I can go online and I see, like, people go, oh, you know, Xenos is on, he's just a big evil person. Um, and then other people can have different opinions. Like, they're all different warriors of light, even though they've played through the same game mm. and, like, created the same outcomes. But their perspective is the difference. Like, my perspective is the difference. I really do feel like, man, I, I am projecting into this game in a way that I haven't felt in most games. Man, that, that, that sounds very compelling. I, I don't normally play MMOs, but that I, I'm yeah. very tempted to play that one. I, I wish I could just play it as an offline game. Yeah. If you just think about it as a single-player game that's in an open world where you occasionally see other people... Yeah. Then it, that's basically what it is. Okay, so basically, yeah, yeah. imagine that it's Dark Souls or, or or Skyrim, right? Kind of, yeah. Except you like summon them instead of just seeing their specters. Okay. Um, okay, maybe I'll but, get um, it. You know, honestly, yeah. it only really feels like an MMO when you're in city centers and stuff like that. Um, once you're out doing quests or you're in the world and you're traveling around, you you yeah. don't really notice it mm. unless you're um, actively doing it, like you're being joining a guild, which actually, uh, I joined a guild in there, and it's actually been pretty fun, like, uh, th this is a really side off tangent, but it kind of plays into, a like, I have the same opinion as you, Richmond, I didn't want to play an MMO, I wanted to play the story, but I, I joined I joined a guild and everything, and they were like, hey, we're all just going to go out to, I forget the name of the beach town that's near, um, that's in uh, Limsa Limosa, but yeah. we just went out, like, and everyone just laid in the water. And I have photos yeah. of this from the game <laughs> of people just like in their like in their skivvies, just laying in the water. It's very peaceful, uh, and that's just what it, this was what we did for like an hour. Wow, yeah, that's, that's that's immersion, man. That's you actually that's just more hung fun out than uh, because when I went to the beach in Bali and like used couch surfing to meet random people, like some of them were, it wasn't as fun. I was like, man, this person's saying things that's annoying me. I want to go somewhere else. <laughs> but yeah, in, in 14, it, it has um, it has a really good online community. Um, well, and guilds, the, guilds can also have like shared um, houses. Like, houses and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, you can leave food out. So I just I go to the um, the free company house. I just go there looking for food, then I eat it. <laughs> that sounds and, like and, you can also, like, uh, train other people's chocobos and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Like, if you feed them items, they'll change their color. And uh, items are pretty expensive, so it can be, like, very helpful to have someone help you turn your chocobo blue or red. Oh. And then... And, uh, um, you, were, you were talking about how uh, it's important to have uh, armor you like, because I had, I had one yeah. that I really liked, and I was like, oh, man, I need this to be black. <laughs> So that it yeah. matches the rest of my armor. And I was like, man, yeah. I can't find black dye anywhere. And they were like, hey, man, I just put some black dye in the in the free company house for you. And I was like, yeah, black yeah. dye. It's like uh, it's like an ideal like hippie commune because you don't like actually have to live there. It's just helping people on your free time. Okay. Um, and then there's stuff like uh, the free company I'm in. They have a submarine. Like, you can't go inside of it. It just collects items for everyone to use. Oh. But, like, I, it's just cool that there's a room where, like, they're building the submarine. And I just went there one day and I saw, like, the free company leaders. 
They're mm. like little, they use little lalafells, and they're just like little tiny lalafells walking around in this like science room. It's like, man, it feels good. It, it just occurred to me that like, you know, the stuff you're doing now in, in the year 2020, yeah. um, it, this is matching like the early cyberpunk novels, right? This is like, it sounds like a scene at a Snow Crash or Neuromancer, like, yeah, yeah, I logged down with my buddies, went to the virtual beach, you know, like, yeah, I mean, um, oh, those, uh, those virtual chat rooms where you have avatars and you're like wearing your VR headset, they get even deeper than that, like, like, uh, Sean, you know about ASMR, right? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, like, uh, now, like, I, I saw this video of like one of those virtual Second Life type games, and it was someone giving a virtual haircut. What? <laughs> Where you sit down, and then this Are you guy. Serious? Yes, he's like, and the I guess the if you're the player, like you have your headphones on, you can hear the 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 scissors going around your head, like making oh a, a pleasant snipping sound. Oh my god, I've never wanted a VR headset more than I do right yeah. now. Yeah. Because if you're getting a real haircut, like your hair is being cut. But yes, I only have a limited amount of hair. Yes, unlimited hair. Unlimited hair to be cut. Yeah, that's great. I I never like when you said the ASMR thing. I was like, oh yeah, there's a couple people that do that like on Twitch, but I hadn't thought about the experiencing it in VR for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that's connected, like, you know, what we're talking about in all these games is it's these games are building communities that um, you interact with indirectly or like outside of the game. Um, yeah, and a lot of the community interaction is actually when you log out of the game or you turn the game off. It's kind of like going back to, you know, the book club concept you read a book and then everyone gathers to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're right. Like, um, there's some nice communities around these games, right? Like, uh, you always hear about like how toxic, uh, social media is or whatever, but like if you, you can find a nice group of people to uh, connect with over, over these games. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, um, well, that is what makes uh, the toxicity of social media is when you don't have common interests or you don't know your common interests. So you're just like foreign tribes fighting over upvotes. Man, I'm, I haven't reached Shadowbringers yet in 14, but everything is building up to it. Like another thing 14 does really well is once the big story arc completes, you get uh winding down like uh they usually have this sequence where you just get to meet a bunch of the characters that you you helped out and then they just like have simple interactions like oh like do you remember this character's name or do you remember like that character like uh, i want to help him well what is the ache that he always complains about oh he he complains about his back and then that's bringing you back to a moment where like that character complained about his his back early in that story arc. They're really good at making you feel peaceful once the action is done. Okay, that's that's really 
That's pretty insightful, right? Because uh, yeah. typically games are about like you know the climax, <laughs> right? You lead lead up to this grueling battle, and then you like celebrate, and that's it. You, games don't typically yeah. have much and, for uh, the uh, denouement part, right? Yeah. And then and, uh, being able to go back to it in a way that you couldn't go back to a book or a movie—that's really cool. Then um. And then a few like sequences later, like you have to deal with the aftermath of your actions. Like, uh, oh, we defeated the Empire, Doma is free, but um, we actually have a lot of Empire prisoners. We're not just gonna kill them. Like, we're gonna do a prisoner exchange to get the Domans that were taken to the Empire, mm. and that becomes a new story arc. Sounds like, very considerate. Yes, considerate is the like sin- like sincerity is also really important i feel that every character every major character in fall fantasy 14 and in a lot of games i like has a moment of like total sincerity where they just pour their heart out and part of the tragedy is like well what they want is just opposed to things that you're going for that's why you have to fight each other but you're both being sincere yes it's a clash of interests right it's not just good versus evil yeah, um, they're very careful about that. Like sometimes, uh, like good actions or good intentions have consequences. And I recently got to this arc where the emperor of the em- like the Garlean Empire, explains his ambitions to, and uh, it goes into like the cosmology of the world of how every. I think there's like 14 different shards of the world. It all used to be one whole world. But um, and so the emperor's goal is to bring to make the world whole once more. Uh. But it involves like uh, killing a lot of people in your current shard. Yeah, it's always impressive if a game can handle like actually fairly complex, um, you know, themes and uh, plots in a satisfying way. Yeah, they're not just biting off more than they can chew. All right, I got I got one more uh, game. My my personal personal favorite game of uh, last last ten years. Um, uh, yeah, just the game I, I keep going back to and just playing just for the pleasure of it is uh, the 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 remake of Odin Sphere. Uh, Odin Sphere Life Thrasir. Yeah. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Um, but. Yeah. Okay, on the one hand, you, you could say this is a bit of a cop-out because it's like, oh, okay, it's just a remake of your favorite game from 2007. But uh, I think they put so much effort into it. Like, it, it is a new game. Like, yeah. And and I think it's also, like, just the most... Ex- it's just exemplary of, like, how to go back and refresh an old game because it's, it's not just a HD remaster. So, I mean, I, I'm sure, like... P- most of the folks listening to this, you're, you're probably familiar with with Odin Sphere, right? It was a, uh, yeah. yeah. If you're listening to us, you probably know VanillaWare. Uh, they do these beautiful 2D games, um, and the the you know the original Odin Sphere came out when like nobody was doing 2D games. There there were, right. you know, they were dead, buried in the earth. Like Capcom stopped making 2D fighters. Yeah. Um, there was no Steam. There was no indie revolution. There weren't even like mobile games. Like, 2D was dead. And then, just this, the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful 2D games I'd ever seen came out of nowhere. Anyways, 
Yeah, like so. So that's the original Odin Sphere. What I was really impressed by with the new one is um, they uh, they didn't just remaster it, make it prettier. They really revamped the gameplay. Like, and and you can switch between the original mode or the new one, but like, the gameplay is so fun. I mean, the the original was. I, I also really enjoyed it, but it, it was. Um, I liked it because it was pretty simple. Like the actual combat was fairly limited in what you could do. You could just do a couple things and. Um, you know, if if you didn't do things correctly, like you'd get killed. I I know that's so simple. That's the basics of video games. Um, the the <laughs> new one, the new one, like it really ups the ante. Like it it adds a lot of complexity to um you know like there's there's like more combos. There's more moves. You now have like skill trees. You can unlock special moves. Uh, and you know it's all not always like linear. Sometimes you have to like find you know, a special gem hidden somewhere to unlock, yeah. like... I think, um, like, speaking of, like, Capcom games, like, it's, like, Odin Sphere and Odin Sphere Left Left Rassier is, like, going from Street Fighter 2 to Street Fighter Alpha. Like, this yeah. is Ryu, but, like, this is in Ryu with more Ryu. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it didn't feel, like, extra... Like it felt like wow, like it's even more of yeah. what it was before. Yeah. So I, I think it's just absolutely exemplary of how to do like a remake because it it didn't just add complexity. Like it the controls are really fun, and then they also adjusted the game balance to accommodate like how much stronger your character is now. So now like they throw more enemies at you, um, and then they came up with some new bosses too that are like really difficult. Like uh, well, yeah. the game's not that hard. For me, the challenge of the game is just getting a S S plus rank on everything. You know, like yeah, um, I I find it's um for me the Odin Sphere games uh, I enjoy it more than uh, Devil May Cry. Oh yeah. Like, but they're both about you know kind of being better than your previous self. I feel like the the thing that uh, VanillaWare probably will never get credit for because it happened in you know in the uh, mostly in the previous decade. But I think a lot of what you're talking about, like you said, 2D was dead. I think it's it. So dead. I think it. This really paved the way, uh, and probably uh, th- this is an absolute speculation. But uh, Odin Sphere uh, after Grim Renoir came out in like I think 2007, and then uh, they had like you know Muramasa coming out in 2009, those kind of games. I'm betting that a lot of people that might have played those went on to create Hollow Knight, Shovel Knight, Cuphead. Uh, like yeah. actually the challenging what you're talking about playing beautiful 2d side-scrolling uh, reactive games that are now kind of populating the indie landscape that are you know giant yeah. giant I, absolutely yeah. I'll, I'll up the ante even more than that I will go as far as to say that vanillaware influenced the basic look of casual games like Facebook yeah. games flash based games mobile games um, that was the resurgence of 2D uh, in the mainstream to 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 a degree that it would in an insane degree. Like uh, a lot of it was just hardware limitations, right? Like you have a low spec phone or computer, you you can still run Flash, you, you can run these 2D games. But like um, you know, I can tell you, like having worked at companies uh, um, making these games, you know, these big Facebook games, like we were very directly inspired by by VanillaWare and just how far they were pushing uh, this this style of uh, 
uh, object animation or, or puppet animation, 2.5D animation, wh whatever you want to call it. Like, I mean, yeah, they like, pioneered uh... it. All of the really big, um, you know, collecting different heroes like iOS games, they they animate like Odin Sphere. And those games Absolutely, are like yes. super duper lucrative, yeah. like what the auto RPG battlers, like yeah, yeah. Fate. Yeah. Yeah, they, um, all, all of them now, all these 2D painterly move-in games, like they, uh, there's a huge move towards a program called Spine. Yeah. Uh, really excellent um, animation program. I love working in it. And that was essentially like made by two developers who I don't know if they've said this, but I, I'm 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 almost certain this was like the elevator pitch. Like, hey, let's make an engine just like those Vanillaware games, because that that's exactly what they did. Yeah. Um, and and, and uh, that's like the de facto 2D style now. Then all they over the world. Pushed it further with Dragon's Crown. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would say gameplay-wise, I don't think Dragon's Crown is as fun as Odin Sphere, though. I, I, I yeah. So that's another reason I like uh, Life Preserver yeah. so much. <laughs> they took all their learnings from Dragon's Crown and refined yeah. it even further um, in 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 Life Preserver. Like, yeah. So the maybe controls are just even more responsive. Yeah. Maybe we'll get the uh, Dragon's Crown Life Preserver where they refine yeah. the gameplay. Yeah. Yeah. Like. The main issue with Dragon's Crown gameplay-wise was it, it gets really hard to follow the action when you, when 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 you have a lot going on. Yeah. Um, you also um you keep on getting new weapons that are just slightly better than the one you already have. Yeah, it doesn't feel that significant, right? There's no milestones in Dragon's Crown. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the pacing of Life Preserver is perfect. Like you, every. You know, like every hour or so, like I'd unlock a new ability or like upgrade an old one, and it felt really satisfying and it well, affected just gameplay. Making like a level nine yogurt drink just oh, feels yes. like such an accomplishment because then yeah. you can go eat for 30 minutes. Yes, I love the eating in that game. It's so, um, <coughs> I don't know, like it, it sounds kind of obtuse if you try yeah. to describe it. Like you, you kill enemies, harvest their souls plant seeds to soak up their souls and then you know you grow you're basically farming and then yeah. you collect those ingredients and then you bring them to you know Mori the traveling chef um, yeah I think um, something Odin Sphere does really well is there's like a lot of interesting medium term goals that you have on the back of your mind like yeah I need to feed I need enough food to feed this chicken if I hatch it I need the right plants to make this potion. I need to get this amount to upgrade this skill. But um, but what's important is that when you accomplish these midterm goals, like it's a significant boost to your power in the game, so you can accomplish more goals. It has a very satisfying uh, loop. Yeah, I, I would say. I have to say, it might have some of the most delicious-looking food in any game. Yes. As yes. Well. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I just I just like that they they came at this idea of leveling up from uh, such a different angle. You know, they weren't just like, okay, well, ever since D and D, you have experience points, and once you reach a certain amount, that's it, right? Yeah. The, the game does have that at at its base core, but the way you boost your experience and get your hit points up is through eating, and the way you eat is through like crafting the food through all these different means, and it it's such a 
all the systems yeah. flow into each other so well. It's um, it's something that like it makes mythological sense, you know. Like uh, there's a bunch of different mythological heroes that get stronger after they eat something amazing, or they killed something and then ate it, or like yeah. you know the monkey king eats those specific peaches to become immortal. Right. Yeah. Like um, e even in Odin Sphere, they reference some. Um, obscure old myth about uh sheep having come from a plant originally. yeah it's um it's uh, because uh i think that myth is uh, based on somebody describing cotton to someone that was only familiar with wool so you're saying this wool comes from a plant like so it's like <laughs> growing sheep oh that's really cool yeah those old bestiary books are really fun yeah and um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about the, uh, a lot of the gameplay a lot, because, you know, uh, running a game studio, think about, like, mechanics a lot. But really, what really drew me into that game um, was the, the beautiful art and animation and the story. I, I love those characters. Like, those characters have really, really stuck with me over the years, you know? Um, each story arc is just so satisfying and like you, you get to know the characters you, you get to know uh just the terrible things that happen to them and and but you get to see them kind of overcome this like multi-generational trauma like it, it's it's really thoughtful and it's it's really um you know meaningful i i think it, it's 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 just a really beautiful story. Like I, I love that game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can uh, mention my favorite game, and I struggled with this a lot because uh, there are a lot of great games this decade. But yeah, I so went many. back to. I went back to the feeling that I had, and I had to. Even though it's not most games that I play in terms of the style, I think Last of Us has got to be it for me. Oh uh, yeah. When I completed that game, it was like. That, and I can't I can't say that many games replicate this. It was like putting down a good book. Like, you know, when you finish the last oh, page, okay. you're just like, you're like, yeah. You just got to sit there and think about it for a second. So even though it's a very narrative-driven game, like it's not giving you a lot of, uh, a lot of difference in gameplay or mechanic or challenge. It's not a challenging game, really. Uh, there's something about the way the story is told through gameplay and through narrative uh, and the way they build up the characters. Uh that I, to me is, uh, I often look at games as one of some of my favorite games tell stories really well. And I, a lot of them approach different ways of telling a story. Um, and it's like I said, it's, it's kind of a realistic looking game. So I, I tend to prefer a more stylized art, but the way that they, and, uh, something that I've been looking a lot at recently with games that I've started to appreciate is when, uh, when designers and studios go in interested in telling a contained story, and not telling you, uh, you know, an all-encompassing one. Like uh, they're interested in telling you the story of these particular characters and a particular journey they're going through, and having you experience it in a unique way, rather than, you know, perhaps the 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 what we would normally start considering with game stories, where it's all about you being some big fancy hero or you saving the world, which is you know classically what a lot of games were doing. I. I Think just the idea that uh, it doesn't really matter what the outcome was; it matters that you went on the journey with them. Uh, and to me, that's a uh, the reason I placed Last of Us there is because it it engineered something that I think people have struggle with with um, 
the reason why uh, games can be potentially more effective than other mediums like movies or books is that there's a level of inter interactivity in experiencing a story that you couldn't have gotten out of uh, a book or a movie, but still had the same satisfying um, ending to it in the way that you felt. So uh, it, it was tough because there's a lot of games that aren't even similar at all. The Last of Us that, that I almost said that we already talked about some of them. Uh, but uh, like ultimately, I, I kind of went back to that the feeling that I had when I finished the game, and it, it, it kind of transcended that that was fun to play. So, what were the ways that it you felt like it um, did take advantage of uh, being a game, and you know, not a book or a movie? Oh, uh, we, we were talking a lot about uh, indirect storytelling, and I think that is uh, a big piece of it, which is like as you're kind of traversing the environments. A lot of the storytelling in the game is actually done through the interactions of Joel and Ellie while they're speaking to each other or while you're experiencing these uh, beautiful but dilapidated environments. Uh, you see, you're and you're you're seeing the kind of not that I'm not I'm not the biggest fan of the post-apocalyptic thing, but there is something they do really well, which is as you experience and you see things in the environment and you meet other characters. Uh, you are learning about the events of uh, what happened. And they did that interesting thing where the game starts off with you experiencing it from, uh, you know, when the the uh, apocalypse happened, which is where a lot of, like, zombie games kind of start out. And then they fast forward many, many years into the future, and they kind of move past all that very quickly because of the way they set up the story. And then they let you kind of work back through... Uh, the experience of what it is, what the world's become. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, even gave uh, Avengers Endgame a lot of credit for letting us sit with the consequences of something. And mm -hmm. I, I think that the the setup of that with this world and then allowing you to uh, experiencing it uh, like through the, the, un, the kind of the indirect storytelling of the world, the way that they are interacting with each other as they walk through it, as you're learning about it from other people, um, is actually what makes it satisfying. And then the, the gameplay in and of itself is is also uh, kind of plays into the story as well. Like it kind of makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, what you would be doing in this world. And then the last piece of it is that, and I, I think this, this might be obvious, but I don't know. Uh, for the most, the most part, giving you control or telling the story through the eyes of a character that isn't really redeemable <laughs> or isn't particularly a hero uh, is always, I think, an interesting angle that you can mess up really easily, but I think they they did it well. Andy, what about you? I'd say, yeah, a game of, that I've enjoyed the most this decade would be yeah, Fall Fantasy XIV uh, for, for the reasons stated. Um, like, it was just surprising. Uh, that an MMO can deliver the story in, in this certain way. Um, I think it's they actually use the nature of the MMO in a very interesting way to keep you like invested in the aftermath of things. Um, and I'm like I haven't even reached like the latest expansion yet that everyone has been praising. Other games that. Like, uh, I think this has also been a good decade for Digimon games. Like, they haven't sold, like, super awesome, but they've just been steadily coming out. Yeah, you don't hear about them much. Yeah. Um, well, I think they're overshadowed by, like, Persona 5 for, like, the 
you know, monster collecting console game. Huh. Like, uh, I mean, Nier Automata also came out this decade, but uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I need to put it on a harder setting because, like, I enjoy the game, but and I do enjoy the combat. But then it's like I'm also way stronger than everything. But it's yeah, I'd say like this has just been a a great decade for building video game communities. I like through asynchronous play or direct multiplayer or just you know giving something to talk about like you know really enjoying a single player uh, single player story see it's also been a very solid decade for monster hunter like i mean monster hunter has always been doing awesome like throughout asia but this was the decade where people went like hey you know uh, dark souls made me realize that swinging a giant sword can feel really good oh yeah, yeah with I, consequences <laughs> yeah Oh man, yeah, Monster Hunter World also so fun. I had so much fun with that. It's such an impressive game. I mean, I I, I would say it, it actually has much better gameplay um, than the uh, Dark Souls, and 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 I think Dark Souls has excellent gameplay. I, I think um, just Monster Hunter's on another level. It it makes more sense, even though the weapons are way more exaggerated. Like, it's funny. I actually talked with some students today after like. They invited me to go to a sushi buffet and we just I like uh, they're asking me about like you know Monster Hunter like the weapon stances like is it actually realistic it's like actually uh, yes for what they do in the game it is realistic because really? they're superhumans but they're fighting in ways that the way they hold their weapon tells you how they're going to use it like um the greatsword in Monster Hunter, you just hold it in front of you, and normally that stance would be very, like, it makes you move slowly because you're balancing something really heavy in front of you instead of on your shoulder. But um, the greatsword has a block button, so when you hold it in front of you, like, you only need to turn it sideways to turn it to a gigantic shield that covers your whole body. Like, that's why they don't use it like a real greatsword, because it's not a real greatsword, it's a giant monster killing slab that you can also hide behind mm. or like um the the long sword and the hammer uh those are both large weapons that you run fast even though you have the weapons out it's because it's you have like a low stance the center of gravity is kept around your waist so like you're not off balance and there those two weapons when you hold them you run faster than if you're wielding a great sword like the hammer uh is primed for like you know a big swing upward and then the long sword is held with a blade uh, the blade the tip in front of you so you can quickly thrust like uh, while the great sword is a weapon for you know blocking or like turning into a big swing the long sword instead of blocking to stop an attack you would stab the monster while backing away to avoid an attack and then you would also do a like a complete uh, 360 with the, the point forward to do a really powerful high momentum slash. Mm. And uh, yeah, and then there's just like really weird things. Like, you know, a hunting horn is not a weapon you would design in a game if you wanted like to do test marketing. Like no <laughs> yeah, one I says, I, I want to use a hammer <laughs> that I can like play it, like blow into. That's really weird. 
but um, that's really special to have something completely weird that you can't find anywhere else. Oh, dude, the, the it's inst- like uh, I think the hunting horn. It's it's like King of Fighters is full of like really handsome men, but then there's like a few ugly, weird characters. That's yeah. what the hunting horn feels like to me. <laughs> it's like something just bizarre that's not conventional and won't be popular, but it's there. Yeah, it's there for variety's sake, right? Like, yeah. like a good fighting game cast. Uh, yeah, it, like, you know, you know, you can play as, like, Haomaru, or you can play as this disgusting goblin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, man, that, that game. Yeah, yeah, and the insect glaive is just yes. nuts. Yes, I was going to say, that felt like it was tailor-made for me. Like, yeah. oh, my God. Like, I, you know, I love... Love and that's combining it. two cool but different things, like being a pet master and being like an acrobatics master. Yeah. And those are usually like, and there's then, enough and, complexity to turn that into two different weapons, but they decided, yeah. you know, just stick it into one for the guy who wants to do everything. Yeah, and you're 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 wielding um, essentially like Alita's uh, blade when she was wandering the wasteland as a tuned agent, right? Yeah, what, she does. What, what is what is the equivalent of that? What what is that? A halberd? Um, what are they? What would you call it? Um, uh, well, I you can say it's a polearm, but um, specifically like Alita's blade, the blade is of, as long as the grip, the hilt. It's like a one to one ratio. Um, interestingly, like that kind of weapon isn't found in Europe. But uh, in China, Korea, Japan, it would be like the Nagamaki or like maybe the Pudao. Like there's Nagamaki is the most consistent name I found for the Japanese version. Oh, yeah. And it's essentially you take like uh, like a an Odachi blade or a Katana blade and then you just extend the hilt so it's as long as the blade. And the reason you do that is so you can... uh, widen your grip which will uh, give you more leverage when you're like pressing against someone else's blade mm. or you can then like uh, hit with a hilt in like uh, you would with a spear or like a, a naginata or like a polar yeah. um, i'd say the insect glaive though is more like a yeah like a glaive or a polearm like the blade part is not particularly lo- like uh long compared to the hilt the grip is much longer yeah 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 i need to to buy monster hunter iceborne like i don't have that expansion but i find that that my pattern is like i play 14 a lot and i just kind of like go like man i wish this combat system wasn't so cooldown base i want to go play monster hunter now (laughs) and then in monster hunter you can get the full dragoon armor and then fight like a dragoon in an action game, just leaping and smashing them from above. But then currently in Final Fantasy XIV, I have like a giant Monster Hunter sword and like Monster Hunter looking armor, so I can play the other game in both of them. Is, is They had an official crossover, right? Yeah, yeah. I hope they do more official crossovers. Because I just reached the part of Final Fantasy XIV where the... Um, the feline shows up and it's just super adorable and it's like telling me about the Rathalos that they found in in like the Mongolian steppes area. Yeah, there's 2010s. A lot of stuff happened. 
So, side note uh, on that, if you wanted to play Iceborne and you haven't gotten it, it is available uh, on the Xbox Game Pass. Yeah. Along with Indivisible, which is also nice. Oh yeah. But uh, I, I wanted to mention that I wanted to mention that because if you haven't, if anyone is listening and hasn't gotten it, it gets it for you on Xbox and or PC, and you get a bunch of other great games with it. But that's actually when I played it, and I was like, wow, I didn't even have to pay. For, well, I mean, I paid for it, but with by the via the pass. But anyway, yeah, worth knowing. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Play Indivisible too. Yes. Yep. Indivisible has the same composer as Secret of Mana. Oh man. Yeah. Does yeah. it really? Wow. Yeah. It's uh. uh Hiroki Kikuda, right? Yeah. 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 He's 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 one of my favorites. Oh. Gosh. Secret of Mana soundtrack is timeless. It's so good. Yeah. And, Such and, a huge variety. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, Indivisible is, is it's got one of the best soundtracks in recent years too. And um, yeah. like, in fact, it's got one of the only soundtracks where I can re- instantly recall the music. It's not like super ambient, you know. Yeah. Like it's hummable, it's memorable. And you know that game is really good animation too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, better praise the people who who animated it. Yeah, people people should send those guys more work. I also wanted to add, I thought this was interesting, because uh, I was just kind of curious if there was any objective measure of the best game of the decade, and I thought I would check out if there was a ranking of Metacritic scores, and the by by a decent margin, the number one game of the decade by Metacritic standards is Super Mario Galaxy 2. Uh, oh. oh, really? Yep. It's even got more uh, positive reviews than uh, Breath of the Wild. Wow. I I remember when that game came out, like I just had this thought in my mind. I was like, "This is so fun! It almost feels like pornographic. Like it's like <laughs> it's like how's it possible to have this much fun? Like it almost it's like almost felt wrong or something. <laughs> uh, the game was just like yeah, pure delight. That, that was the one where you, you you could turn into a bumblebee, right? I don't remember if that was Odyssey or Super Mario Galaxy. Uh, oh, it's definitely yeah, galaxy. it's galaxy. Was it part was it? one or it was part two, right? Where, yeah, where you, there's you a, a bumblebee. There's suit? a bee mushroom. Yeah. <laughs> wow, Mario looks really cool as a bee. Never, I never played Honestly, galaxy. Mario too. looks Mario looks pretty cool as a lot of things. To be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. Yeah, like right now in Odyssey, I'm just dressed up as a caveman, and it just. This kind of makes like stomping on the enemies feel more primal. <laughs> in in um, Galaxy, the the main mode of attack was actually like this: your spinning fists, right? Like 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 Zangief really? doing uh, oh. right. Like, I mean, you could jump on things, but it was easier just to like uh, waggle the controller and make them uh, spin around, right? Yeah, and then in uh, Odyssey, that's been replaced with a hat spin, okay. where you throw the hat around you Project like. But I think I would enjoy just spinning like Zangief and smashing him with Mario's <laughs> fists. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll have to play Galaxy too. I I never played it. Oh yeah, it did. You gotta give it a shot. It's funny. So that that came out in 2010, huh? Wow. Yep, it slipped right under the radar, and then apparently it just continued to beat everybody else out. Yeah. You know, it's um I I'd say that's the other interesting thing about the decade is like. That game from 10 years ago hasn't really aged. Like, it could come out right now on the Switch, and people would be like, oh my god, 
this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah, uh, this I, is the time to do it. Like, oh, they should totally. Well, I don't know. That game sold super well. I'm sure tons of people played it. But yeah, why not re-release it? But yeah, I, I guess just games have finally gotten to the point where like they're like movies. You know, like you could just say like, hey, oh, you like that? Why don't you watch this? You know, why don't you play this game from like 10, 20 years ago? Like, oh, okay, they're not exactly like movies because you you have to have the right console and the the, the UX is totally uh, different. But the, so the barrier is greater. But um, I, I think, but the culture around it has gotten to the point where people are not like, oh, that's old. Why would I play that? Right? It's like no. Like clearly, there's good games from from every era, and even 10 years ago, they're so polished. Like you know, maybe other than some minor quality of life things, like they 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 totally stand up. Well, I feel like that's why you're you're seeing uh, you still see a large resurgence of remasters being added to newer consoles. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it's a rumor if it was confirmed, but it sounds like even like the PlayStation Five is going to be backwards compatible to all Playstations. Oh um, So like the, we're definitely, and uh, I know they've been pushing like the live streaming services. So I really feel like coming into the next decade, you're not going to see older games go away. I think they're going to continue to be yeah. uh, brought back up. And I think with the exception of maybe, you know, games like the Resident Evil uh, remake, most of these are not remakes. They're remasters. They're just upping. And they're really not even doing that much to them. Uh, I, I even was playing the Dark Souls remaster, and they're really just kind of making slight changes. Like they're upgrading the the texture quality because they have more memory. Like they're not really doing anything fundamentally to the game to make it look or feel much better. They're just kind of using the, 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 the kind of the better hardware or the availability of cloud or internet to bring it up to, um, to surmount some of the limitations that it might have had at the time. But uh, like it's so many of these games uh, don't, like I said, they, they really haven't fundamentally changed them. They hold up really well. Uh, yeah. right, right. I think one one example I'm really excited about is uh, they're going to re-release Devil May Cry 3 on the Switch, and um, for the most part, it's a straightforward uh, port, but they made one really important uh, change where you, you can switch the uh, styles on the fly now, because, you know, it was a limitation of the PS2 era, like, that thing did not have much RAM, like, so, so you, you know, in that game, you had to choose... Uh, your 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 weapon and your style like and then you go into the game right and then later later Devil May Cry's you you, you could switch on the fly like most notably yeah. Part Five but simply adding that back into that to 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 this PS2 era game is like gonna add so much depth to it like I you know I, that's I, gonna I that's gonna be really fun the uh, Dark Siders remastered which is a pretty similar gameplay scheme feels great on the Switch oh yeah. There's, okay. there's like we were talking about this last uh, like couple podcasts ago. This the the buttons and the control on the switch, especially for games that require you to jumps, timing, and combos. They just they feel good. Yeah. Well, they're very clicky. They don't feel like mushy. Yes. Yes. Crisp, crisp buttons. Yeah. Very important. Okay. Let's uh let's let's wrap this up. Any 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 final thoughts? I would say. No, no, this, just talking about this made me realize, like, music is a really big part of uh, when I pick, like, a favorite game of any era. Like, so I, I listen to Final Fantasy XIV's music the most often, and, uh, like, 
I don't remember any music from Dark Souls, even though I do like the games. But then uh, I listen to the soundtrack of Nier Automata pretty often, or like the soundtrack of even older Pokemon games. And then mm. just leaving the music on in Mario Odyssey as like, you know, I go pour a glass of water. Like, it, it just makes life better to hear yeah. Mario music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mario games, underrated music, yeah. Yeah, I need to, to learn more about music. The last thing I'll add is that uh, this was almost an impossible task to talk about because the more you think about this, the more you look at, especially within this decade, there are uh, an insane amount of great games. Yeah. Um, and there's there's pretty, and like especially because of the explosion of uh, indie games happening, which we talked about, uh, it's it's really difficult. Like it, I almost one thing I was uh I was thinking about that I just wanted to mention is I feel like it's easy for us to opt toward a lot of the the bigger titles as influential because they're visible, and mm -hmm. I think that does make them influential. But uh, when I started mentally going back through what are a lot of the games that like I think if I were to map out all my gameplay time throughout the the last ten years, I would bet you that a overall a uh, grand majority of it pieced together by a number of indie games is actually the bulk of my game playing time. Uh, and they have may, may not have been memorable because of tentpole or set piece things, but they've all been really fun and satisfying to play. And it's just, uh, there's there's really like, not, like there's so many games out there. So if you ever think there isn't a great game that came out, uh, you'd be wrong. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's great. Um, only thing I have to add is, um, oh, it's a great, great time to, uh, you know, to be playing games and to, to be making games. And um, just, I guess, my, my takeaway from this conversation today is uh, uh, I think the games that we discussed, the games that stuck with us, um, aside from the great gameplay, uh, they're the ones that we had an, an emotional connection with, right? Like Andy, you, you were talking about the music, you know. Yeah. I mean that—that's precisely what the music is there for—to—to to, to strike a chord emotionally. Um, unless it's a music game, it's not going to uh, directly affect the gameplay that much. But it—but it, it does, because everything is gameplay. Like the whole experience is gameplay, right? When it comes to yeah. it. So, um, there is yeah. a level in Mario Odyssey where you have to jump to the beat, I believe. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's in Galaxy. It's uh, like Beat World or something. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Toad does that a lot. Captain Toad is good music, right? Um, yeah, there's uh, levels where, like, there's blocks that disappear and reappear based on the music. Uh, okay. Yeah, Mario does that, too. Yeah. yeah. And we yeah. should just... Do a podcast of like Mario, Mario. Yeah, Mario. yeah. Maybe that's what the next one will be. Just like just the We Love Mario podcast. Yeah, yeah. Let's okay. do that. That's a great topic. Okay, let's let's uh, let's let's wrap wait, let's up. wrap things up there. Okay, so um, thank you everyone for for listening. Um, I, I thank you, Andy. Thank you, Sean, for uh, you know being so awesome yeah. to just chat with. Uh, Sean, thank you for, for always uh, spearheading the, the organization of this, recording it, uh, doing the really hard work of editing it and putting it online. Uh, thank you so much for that. Like, uh, 
people, you, you wouldn't be able to listen to this without Sean doing um, yeah, so, so much work behind the scenes. Uh, so I, I hope everyone listening had a good time. Uh, I definitely always have a great time recording these. And um, we will see you next time. Yep. Later. Okay. Later. Later. Later.